VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial... 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it's not necessarily still golf season, but one of which Blair Bursey from Gander, all the very best of luck as he tries to ply his trade and find himself with a spot on the PGA Tour. He's been playing all over the world, had an outstanding collegiate career. It's day one of the first stage of Q School. They're actually playing at the University of New Mexico on their championship course. So good luck to Blair at Q School. All right. This past weekend was the 50th annual Hall of Fame induction ceremony for folks being inducted by Sport NL. So I want to congratulate this year's inductees. Charlie Babstock in the athlete category for hockey and soccer. He's a beauty. Eric Easton in the athlete builder category for racquetball. Donnie House in the athlete category for hockey. Mary Oakley in the veteran athlete category, softball, rowing, soccer. Mary said to have a bullet for an arm. And Gene Lake, now Gene Thompson, in the builder category in soccer. And Sarah Wadhawan, hopefully I pronounced that properly. In the athlete category for badminton, congratulations to them. I also want to say congratulations to Simon Perry from Portugal Cove St. Phillips, one of five people to receive this year's Fran Todd Allhart Junior Curler Award. It goes to the folks who display their efforts in outreach curling programs, embody the values of curling, and put the highest priorities of fair play, respect, and inclusivity in. So Mr. Perry receives 2500 bucks to cover expenses and other costs. Congratulations. Nice award to win. And we're just a month away from training camp for the newly established Professionals Women's Hockey League. So, you know, of course, when we talk about salaries, and pro sports salaries are unreal, and I guess you get what you pay for sometimes, and it's all driven by demand and sponsorship and people willing to buy tickets, but just think about it. The entry-level contract to be in the NHL is, I think, around $750,000 a year. These teams are going to have to guarantee uh, minimum standard player contracts for $35,000 American. Teams can sign more than nine players to minimum contracts, can't sign more than nine players to minimum contracts. The average salary in the team is supposed to be about $55,000. Training camp opens a month from now. And you'll see a government news release. We all know winter's right around the corner. So it's two weeks till Halloween, and on November 1st begins the opportunity for folks to put their studded tires on. There's always going to be the annual debate about what best suits the weather where we live, whether it be just winter tires and or studded tires, impact on the roads, all the things people talk about. All right, let's dig into the housing plan announced yesterday. So, of course, opposition politicians will be quick to say too little too late and question the government's priorities regarding housing. And yes, the Premier says there's an acute crisis, but let's dig into the five-point plan that was announced yesterday. Okay, some of it's re-announced. So, removal of the GST, HST, and new rental housing bills. That was, of course, announced last month. The questions will be, it's great to try to incentivize the private developers to develop and build more affordable units. How does the plan actually work, though? Where are the guardrails that need to be in place to ensure that it's simply not additional profit? Profit's not a bad word, but when we're trying to hit the affordability bullseye, where in the plan 
does it say that the units have to be constructed to afford X amount of rent per month? Because affordability is sort of a floating target anyway. So the plans, and we've got to overturn every stone to figure out how to get through this. And the country needs to build 5.8 million homes by the end of the decade. We have to build 60,000 here in this province to accommodate the need over the course of six years. So, okay, it's probably a good idea. Any incentive may indeed be helpful. But how exactly does it work? How do we make sure that affordability is achieved with that particular plan? There's a low-interest financing program to help construct rental housing, convert non-residential buildings into rentals. Okay. Using available provincial government-owned land and buildings for construction or conversion to rental housing. This one, of course, many people have talked about this for years, including the government. I've often wondered how we're so slow to continue to want to uh, carry costs for buildings that are still owned by the government, that are vacant, need to be repurposed, paying insurance or whatever else is involved in keeping these buildings. What's the holdup here? You know, aren't there private business people out there willing and wanting to buy some of these government buildings for whatever purpose, including housing? Because, of course, many of these government buildings will be on prime pieces of real estate. So even if it's a real estate buy, but, of course, I guess here, the caveat in the contract would have to be you need to repurpose it for housing. Is that financially attractive? Can it be done where people can make the investment and see a return on their investment over the course of however, however many years? Because, again, how does it work? A home ownership assistance program that would help first-time home buyers get the required down payment to purchase a home. They already have to have qualified for the mortgage but don't have the down payment cash. Again... There is a first-time homebuyer incentive federally. It's a shared equity mortgage with the government of Canada. So it's 5 or 10% for a first-time buyer's purchase of a newly constructed home. 5% for a first-time buyer's purchase of a resale for, a, of course, an existing home. 5% for a first-time buyer's purchase of a new or resale mobile or manufactured home. Is that program federally, can it be coupled with this potential uh, program here provincially? If so, makes it fairly attractive. Next one, a pilot project to help homeowners convert part of their home into apartments for rental use. This is very interesting on both sides, isn't it? So it's a forgivable loan of 50% of the cost of renovations, up to a maximum of $40,000 over five years. That might be very helpful on the rental market. You know, some people who own a single-family dwelling may look at the cost of living for everything they see and touch and feel, which has gone through the roof. So the possibility to convert, say, the basement of their bungalow into an apartment, maybe the kids have moved out, right? The empty nester. So when you have the possibility of investing in your own home, which will increase its value for resale, and will also put some extra dollars in your pocket coming through the rent downstairs or whatever part of the house, that might be pretty attractive. The trick there will be how easy and quickly can people even make that decision organize the investment dollars to make this conversion, and then to get the contractors and subcontractors to do it. But that five, that fifth point in the five-point plan, that might be a sweet spot for revenue for the homeowner, uh, adding units to the rental market. So what do you make of all that? But we, of course, we've got to have answers to some of these questions, especially in the GST issue. How do we make sure that what comes out the other end is affordable? And of course, affordability, it's much like when we talk about affordable housing, we use it as a real catch-all. But of course, affordable housing for a senior, someone with mobility issues, someone with a substance abuse problem, mental health requirements, it all means different things. 
and so does the amount of money that qual- uh, that would qualify for affordable. So some of those questions, I think a little bit more meat on the bone to figure it out. And in the affordability equation, I know many people, especially those who are landlords, property owners, don't really want to have the conversation about rent control, but it's probably coming. You know, if you look at how it works in other places, an annual rent control, say, of 2.5%, which I believe is what it is in PEI. And then you talk about if and when the rental becomes vacant. And then, of course, there's the concept of vacancy control. I'm not promoting one or the other. I just think we have to add it into the conversation. Will that dissuade private developers from getting in the business? I guess it's something we have to discuss with the umbrella organizations and just see how it's worked over the course of two, five, ten years in other places where they have imposed rent control. So anyway, some big questions there. One second, I have a quick sip of coffee. We're back. Okay. Add to it the conversation that we're hearing, getting some traction, rightfully so, about the whopping big rent increases for the private-owned personal uh, care homes. They're not gauged or governed by the Residential Tenancies Act. And, you know, the one example that's getting a lot of uh, attention is a 14% increase, an additional $450 per year. Now, when the government brought forward the monies for the folks who are subsidized to be in a long-term care bed, it didn't impact these privately owned homes. There hasn't been increases in many occasions since 2017. Yes, the people who own the houses, their input costs are up. No doubt about it. Rent increases are going to be reflected by input costs. But then you even hear from someone like Sean Lane, who is in charge of the Personal Care Homeowners Association. He says increases are long overdue, but he does go to say that the one home that's getting the attention of Paradise is not a member of his organization, and so they have no control, necessarily, of this private business, which can do as it sees fit. But even Mr. Lang says there is an essence of unprofessionalism with such a huge increase with 30 days' notice. So the government, Minister Osborne says, disappointed, but disappointment doesn't necessarily mean action. What has to change on that front? We cannot have government jumping up and down on the purse strings or the throats of private owners of whatever you know we need we need free enterprise to conduct itself as the market sees fit and as the market can bear but when we talk about seniors that don't qualify for any government subsidy and paying full out of pocket there's got to be some attention to that shouldn't there be and how would that work? I'm not necessarily saying I know exactly what we should do, but it is obviously a major concern. An additional $450 a month for some who simply have their old age security and their CPP, maybe a few investment dollars if they're lucky enough to have them uh, kicking around. But that's a pretty big one. What do you think? And I would like to see more conversation from our elected officials because, look, the list of concerns that's going to be on the agenda for the House of Assembly is long. And much of it is very complicated. But when you talk about seniors in care homes, when you talk about long-term care beds that are vacant because of staffing, those people are probably in a hospital bed. There's a cost-benefit analysis that we deserve to see, and some work done by the provincial government about what it would cost to have you in a long-term care bed versus required supports at home. I just don't know why that's not a bigger conversation. It would free up hospital beds. It would free up long-term care beds. It would probably be a a healthier, happier, safer option for so many people who are currently in their own home. They know that they're starting to need a little additional support. You know, whether they have a few hours here and there from home care and knowing that getting older, things are becoming more challenging, maybe their medical issues are evolving, growing, worsening. So I don't know why that conversation doesn't happen a bit more aggressively 
in the House of Assembly, but anyway, you want to take it on. Let's go. And now let's lighten it up a bit. Well, maybe not quite yet. <laughs> so it's school safety week, and the focus this year is digital safety. We can hopefully talk about safety inside the schools and inside the walls of the schools and hopefully more programs to monitor and supervise the playground and the parking lot and what have you. But how do teachers, administrators, and the district even approach the whole conversation about digital safety? When the children leave school, we all have seen these stories and they're horrific because it's so easy to be brave up with your keyboard and for the digital pylon to have major negative impact on young people well and adults as well so how do we even talk about it you know do we dedicate much in the way of curriculum to talk about digital safety we probably do i'm not in the schools i'm not saying oh my god there's deaf ears and blind attention given to this but that makes it much more difficult you know i suppose not in an effort to scare but simply to inform tell stories that have had really traumatic and sometimes tragic outcomes because of the digital pylon and the lack of attention to digital safety. You want to take it on? Let's go. And now time to lighten it up. We rightfully talk about the fact that there's so many children in school that just need some additional support. Literacy, numeracy, uh, folks on the spectrum, ADHD, behavioral issues. Absolutely. Because that's the whole essence of inclusivity. What we don't talk about near enough is the overachiever right? The exceptionalities. So congratulations to Waterford Valley High School teachers Jill Rose and Maggie Taylor. They are this year's recipients, uh, they're amongst the winners, of this year's Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence. It's about a program that they implemented last year. For students in grade 11 and 12, they are saying, Miss Rose and Miss Taylor are saying that some of the overachievers are so bored with school, they don't go to school. They're not challenged, they're not intrigued, they're not interested, they're not excited because the curriculum is just a bit of a bore to them. And there's lots of students out there like that. So what they've done is there's a free, a free slot in their day to pursue what they're interested in. Freedom to choose their own projects, matched up with a mentor from the wider community, even to maybe to tutor some of their peers in school who just need a little bit of additional help. Terrific idea. So now the overachievers are going to school. They're excited and they're engaged. There's an example for one young student created an app for new Canadians to learn Newfoundland sayings, find job opportunities. Another designed an engine that runs on solar power water. One student working on a novel, now designing the cover for the novel. There was a student who was a young athlete, cracked the tooth, now he's been looking into dentistry as a career. So, yes, the reading and writing and arithmetic is always going to be the cornerstone of education, but there's nothing quite like having an engaged, excited, content, challenged student to be also part of these conversations. So congratulations to Jill Rose and Maggie Taylor. Terrific idea, and it's paying off in spades. Good stuff. How are we doing out there, Dave? All right, a couple of quickies here. So, you know, Marine, the Marine Institute was in the news for not all the greatest reasons not so long ago regarding their engagement with the folks who own the submersible, the Titan. But now they're back in, being talked about and recognized on the international stage uh, scale again. The Marine Institute is a hidden gem. It really, truly is. All the focus goes to CNA, Memorial University, and we understand why, but the Marine Institute. So their School of Ocean Technology's Master of Applied Technology Ocean Mapping Program has received the highest recognition for the hyd hydrographic surveyors from the IBSC. Good stuff. 
building our momentum. We should be an absolute leader in ocean sciences, and we are up amongst them. We absolutely are, whether it be the simulators, which are in high demand at the Marine Institute, and yes, the gateway to the north and the center of excellence that we absolutely should grow on. So just another little bit of good news inside of schooling, when, of course, we do focus in on some of the not-so-good. Speaking of ocean mapping, what have you, you know, there's lots of stories coming out now about the fact that there's not one single wind turbine offshore anywhere in Canada. Then there's a fellow who's done some, uh, some of the think tank work, and he's talking about the fact that maybe things like the Atlantic Loop seemingly derailed will possibly set us back in trying to harness, harness the offshore wind, the potential therein, because th it's out there. The provincial government here says that they're approached all the time about offshore wind. Now, currently, there are discussions and negotiations to come up with a regulatory regime for offshore wind. It can't come soon enough. There's a proposal for the Sable Island Bank alone, Nova Scotia, to accommodate a 1,000 offshore turbines. And look, everything comes with an impact to something else. Wildlife, bird, marine life, it absolutely has questions that need to be answered, but get a load of this. The Sable Island uh, proposal alone, a thousand offshore turbines, each of them with the capacity to produce 15 megawatts. That's talking about powering thousands upon thousands of homes, pardon me, 6.5 million homes, average Canadian homes, so the proposals are out there. Where's the government and what's the status of the negotiations to come up with the regulations because they have to be the required level of tight and consideration to all impact and yes the economic upside but this particular fellow he was with the public policy forum uh what's his name again a editor somewhere can't find it anyway he's talked about the fact that maybe the atlantic loop going away might jeopardize some of the possibility economically speaking in atlantic canada but that's a big one all right a couple of very quick ones so yesterday in the House of Assembly, which opened for the fall sitting, they're only going to be in there for five weeks, new leader of the PCs, Tony Wakeham, proposed an emergency debate about cost of living issues. Absolutely. You know, we can talk housing, but cost of living extends well beyond simply housing. Then you couple it with some of the comments coming from the federal government about needing uh, grocery big retailers, the five big ones which control 80% of the market, for more information on stabilizing prices, which was... Uh, had a Thanksgiving target. I don't know. Stats Canada is going to release the inflation numbers tomorrow for the general inflation rate and food inflation. But the big question is, when the prices go up as quickly as they did, they certainly don't come down at the same rate of speed. So an emergency debate on cost of living, if you had your druthers and wanted to give a priority list to the members of the House, join us on the phone and talk about it this morning if you are into it. One last one. I always have a somewhat difficult time talking about this issue, but critically important, and it's not working the way it was intended, and that's medical assistance in dying made. It's being discussed in the House of Commons. It's Bill C-314. Now they're talking about, and this has been delayed to coming into effect until the middle of March next year, but any person over the age of 18 that has a, uh, could ask for medical assistance in dying when mental illness is the modern medical condition they have. For those where there's no hope based on an incurable ailment, the prognosis is dire, the pain is overwhelming to the person who's suffering and, of course, their family and friends. Medical assistance in dying may indeed be appropriate through the, uh, the right conversations with your doctors. But mental illness and the stories from Manitoba last year where people just needed a bit more support to live at home. 
in order to talk about home care hours. And because they were unable to and couldn't manage their own day-to-day -day life, they chose MAID and adding mental illness. Now, there can be some mental illness that is completely unmanageable, but that doesn't mean that the option needs to be killing, you know? MAID just sounded like a legitimate, reasonable possibility or option. Now it is being what I will call abused. You know, even some of the offerings to Canadian military veterans when looking for some additional help and MAID is immediately on the table, it's not how it was intended to work. And now in some form, it's becoming kind of gross. So if you're interested in talking about this issue, you have limited amount of time to contact a member of parliament and make your concerns known because that issue is looming large and full implementation including mental illness by March the 17th of next year. If that's a concern to you, please do indeed connect with your member of parliament and make your concerns known. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is open on VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. One of the three candidates vying over this past weekend and the months leading into this last weekend to be the new leader of the Progressive Conservative Party alongside Lloyd Parrott and the eventual winner, Tony Wakem, is Eugene Manning. He joins us on line number two. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's kind. How about you? Not too bad. Listen, I uh, just wanted to call in. Thanks for giving me the time. First off, I wanted to say congratulations to Tony Wakeham um, on a great campaign and a great victory. Him and his his staff and the team, they, uh, they deserved it and they earned it. And uh, I think it's a great showing for our party and uh, good on him. And I think he did a great job in the house yesterday as well. I was interested in watching and following along, of course. And I asked Mr. Wakeham this yesterday. You know, some leadership contests can be really contentious and they can really bring some division to the party. This one was, I said, and I called it low key, not to be an insult, but it kind of just felt like it was certainly a big deal inside the party. Some 10,000 people uh, registered to vote and 92% of them actually went ahead and voted. Was there a conversation or was that a concerted effort in your own mind to kind of keep it above the belt? Because sometimes when it doesn't uh, go that way, the party gets derailed for a couple of years. So how did that work for you and your team? Uh, most definitely. Uh, Low-key, I would say, in the public, yes. But here at headquarters, where I'm cleaning up here this morning, uh, I would say anything but over the last few months. Uh, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a bit of a shift. But no, I think all campaigns realize that over the years, our party, and look, that's a... a Empire once united must divide, and once divided must unite. Um, it's it's you know it's the ebb and flow of any political party, and um, as I said, I've been around I've been around this one for years and decades, and it comes and goes. And I think um, we're we're over the division that we've had in the past few years, and it's time for us to come together and uh, offer a clear a clear alternative. And uh, look, speak look no further than it was a very close race. Um, we secured 48, I think it was like 47.7 percent of the points. But even after that, uh, myself and Tony and uh, Lloyd, full credit to him for his campaign, came together, and I, th I think we're going to be a united front going forward. And where to next for you? Are you going to be on the ballot? Uh, look, I'll do what's in the best interest of the party. I'm sure I'll have that conversation with Tony in the in the days and weeks to come. Um, Patty, just if I if I could, and, and it ties into that. Um, these campaigns can be very taxing. Um, over the past nine months, as it was pointed out numerous times during the campaign, I didn't have a seat in the house, so there was uh, no paycheck uh, in my house for the last nine months. So the financial realities of these things become uh, very aware, and um, the sacrifice of my family and my team. And um, so I want to offer thank you to them, to Megan and the boys. Uh, my six-year-old didn't quite understand what was happening Saturday, and uh, that can you very hard at times. But um, and to the Manning Crane families and really the entire Cape Shore. Um, there's been, and my, my volunteers, 
Paddy, the shift some people have punched here over the past nine months is uh, nothing short of remarkable. And you end up feeling worse for your team than you do for yourself after these things. Um, you know the commitment and the time and the volunteer effort the people put in. So uh, we'll step back and we'll take a look. And uh, we're going to do everything. I know I am. And I know many of my team are. And obviously all of my team are going to do everything we can to support the PC party. Um, we've always done that. And we'll continue to do that. And wherever Tony thinks my time is best served, that's where, uh, that's where you'll find me. Eugene, so getting 47.7% of the votes, well, I think the number you quoted, was there one or two things that you think really resonated to make you the choice for some of the 10,000 that voted for you? Let's say on the economic side before we get to what you think might have hurt you. What is so, any couple of issues that you really thought you got some positive traction on? Look, Patty, I think there's, um, and even speaking to your, to your conversation, your preamble this morning and the conversation in the House, um, our focus from day one, is and I'll just use this year. We spend this year. We're going to the provincial government is going to spend 1.6 billion dollars. It doesn't have. Um, there's an affordability crisis. There's a housing crisis. We need a very large conversation in this province and this country about what is the expectation of government and what it can deliver and how it can afford. And it is not to say whether it is this or that, but if the reality of it is, if the government is expected to provide X, then it's going to cost Y, and we have to pay for that, and it has to be sustainable. And I think that's where we got a lot of traction. Uh, we said it throughout. It, look, it, it can it can hurt you as well, and we can all second guess. And I'm sure there'll be days. You know, there'll be. I'm sure there'll be moments in the days ahead where I'll sit back and think about this and that. But uh, the whole point of of what we tried to bring forward was it is what it is. I believe what I believe, and um, I do think there's a reckoning coming, and that people have to uh, address the fiscal realities in this province. September 1st, uh, we went to the bond market for another $300 million, Betty, and we're up to 4.65%. It was 4.15 in June. I know I, the people say I get lost in the weeds policy, but it's where my, it's where my, head, stick, uh, it's where my head sticks. Look, Bill C-69 got overturned last week by the Supreme Court of Canada, Patty. We're not talking about it in this province. I mean, there's economic realities here that I think are being missed, and I know Tony's team believe that as well, and I'm sure they want to bring those forward. But um, I think that really helped us. That really resonated. I know there's, of course, there's name recognition issues, and um, my time has always been spent in the back room, so I could talk about that for, for ages, but I think most people, look, it's not my time anymore. It's, um, it's Tony Wakeham and, and the rest of the caucus, and I'm sure they're going to do great work, and I look forward to uh, seeing what they're going to bring forward. <laughs> name recognition is always important, right? Maybe it's given too much credit, but uh, I would imagine a PC candidate named Manning has at least some built-in name name recognition. Oh, I, I'm not uh, trying to look at that. I'm not trying to. Now, funny enough, when you're when you're a Manning from the shore, buddy, I tell you what, it can, uh, you, you always take a second when someone says it knows you. It, uh, it can go for you and against you. Sure. And, that's, uh, and we wear that with pride on both sides of Patty. Uh, I'm not going to deny that any day of the week, twice on Sunday. But um, it's uh, no, I just and I'm not taking anything from it. You just asked the question. It's it's, uh, it's Tony's victory. They did very well. And they, sure. they very much they they very much earned it. And I give full credit to him and his team. I don't think anyone can deny the concern and the reckoning the bills coming due with provincial net debt and our sovereign debt. The question I would have, and you know, Mr. Poliev talks about, for instance, every new dollar of spend has to come with a dollar cut. There's places where I think there's ample opportunity to cut some of the fat that the federal and provincial government spend. I, you know, and I know you're well aware of this. When we get into trying to balance budgets that are already so far out of whack, it's that can you make things actually worse? Even though the bills come due, austerity seems to have been proven time and time again to really not help. So it might feel good on the ledger and on the books 
but on the ground maybe just maybe not so much but I get it look I'm, yeah, my really? children are going to have to be part of paying the debt I totally well, understand Maddie, I'm a, a, a sorry I didn't know we get into policy this morning but I guess I could be a bit more uh, uh, yes when austerity comes in and I'm not calling for austerity or today, no, no. Um, they say it gets pushed out but these things aren't uh, these things aren't five and ten year problems these are generational problems absolutely these are things like uh, um, um, net uh, defined benefit pensions it takes 70 years for a full life cycle of those things so to speak of the austerity 2008 we'd have to look at or, or the economic crisis 2008 we have to look 20 and 30 years down the road before you get the full and i think that's lost in our political system and not on anyone you know we run in four-year cycles um but i, I do think people are starting to feel and I, I i would point back once again to the support that we found in this campaign is that uh People realize that there's the longer we kick the can down the road on some of these issues, the the rougher it's going to get when those decisions finally get made. No okay. doubt. And um, I mean, I make the I'm point not, all the time. I'm not relitigating anything here today. I was just. Uh, oh, I'm uh, just having a conversation. It's not about where you stand or I stand or anyone stands. We're just, you know, throw it out there for the listening public. And look, I've said this at least a thousand times. Up until this year, we were spending more to simply service the debt than we were on education. So, I mean, that's all anybody needs to know. I think we get education right. We get a lot of the other concerns, uh, economically and societally speaking. We get those right when we're doing a better job in education. But we were paying a billion dollars to service debt, more than we were spending on education. So that's the upside-down reality that I think you're speaking to, and I appreciate that. I didn't mean to drag it down a political road, even though I'm kind of politically inclined. But, yeah, you uh, me both. <laughs> yeah, it's just part of the conversation. Uh, Eugene, congratulations on taking a run. We'll all keep an eye on whether or not you're going to appear on the ballot as a PC candidate, because the election I don't think is probably as far away as the ter- the extended term allows but I guess we'll all find out when we find out appreciate the time Eugene thanks for this thank you very much Patty you have a good day you too bye-bye all right. All right. So a lot to that. And of course, you know, when we talk politics, you can't help but broach it a little further. OK, let's take a break. When we come back, Todd's in the queue to talk about housing and homelessness. And then we're going to talk about the privacy breach at Eastern Health in particular with Marie. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go to source before you get on the go. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Well, of course, it's that time of year. Always opportunity to be very aware as you monitor yourself, or pardon me, you navigate the highways and byways. A couple of moose on the go. On the TCH, about three kilometers east of Badger. Then there's another one talking about. Let me click that open. One big bull moose crossed the highway right in front of them. The, uh, one kilometer east of the bay. It just says the bay highway turn off. Which bay? <laughs> I don't know. Let's go. Watch out for the moose. Let's go line number one. Todd, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning, sir? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, top shelf, as you would say. Good man. Uh, I, won't, I, I know this housing thing is is in the uh, news big time and that, but I'd like to talk on, on a specific uh, case, actually. Uh, here in town, we have a gentleman that hangs out on Kelsey Drive and uh, Kim Mount Road there. I see him every and, day. Yeah, right now he doesn't have his glasses. His glasses broke, and I, I went to look for him this morning to bring him up some crazy glue to see if he could fix his glasses because they're very thick, and I know he can't see. This gentleman, who I uh, I speak to him on a regular basis and stop and have a chat all the time with him and bring him some fruit and things like that, things to help him through his day, you know. Um, this gentleman has cancer, and he lives in a ditch in a tent, and there's nobody monitoring this man. He also has some mental illnesses, too, but he's a very, very nice man. Very, very nice man. And he is fell, he has fallen through the cracks like you wouldn't believe. 
uh, he has told me that his cancer has been on the go for a long time, like a, a year and that. So one of these days, we're going to look on that corner and that man's not going to be there and we're just going to go on our regular day. But I'm going to scratch my head and I'm going to walk down the woods and see where he's to if I miss him for three or four days. He's just one of these guys that I stop and, and just say hi when I'm at light and, and throw him a cheese and cracker or a, a bottle of orange juice or something whenever I can, right? But this this is so far out of hand, there is no coming back. The provincial government, the, the liberal government, started in 2017 with a housing plan, okay? I do believe this is 2023 right now. That's a long time to have a housing plan. Now, they say it was another leader of the liberal government that started this or whatever. It doesn't matter. That is the government the liberals. It is their policies they were putting in place. They haven't done nothing. I, I'm not a fan myself of, of, of uh, the premier uh, because I don't think he's done anything positive for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador since he's been in power. He's removed people when we were first in the pandemic, sent seven or eight uh, medical staff to Ontario when we were in a pandemic. He's thrown uh, double sugar taxes on us. He's, there's nothing uh, I can't come up with a positive thing that he he has put in place, not something that was in the works, okay, that he's taken a pat on the back for. Uh, but so- that's a bit about sharing resources. I totally get where you're coming from because, I mean, we have a shortage that we're trying to navigate here. But when requested, it's probably in our best interest because we might be the next province looking for some assistance, whether it be we're fighting a wildfire or if there's a, an acute crisis here, like Fiona, what have you. So the shared resources thing, that's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of boomerang stuff. Sometimes if you help, you get help back. So I get where that comes from, too, because it would be awful if we said no, even with, over this summer with firefighters in Quebec and in Alberta. You say no, and then maybe when you need it, the no is very quick before you even get the question or the request out of your mouth. So that's a tricky one for me. Yeah, but see, when we're in a, in, in a crisis, it's hard for us to to give our, our expertise away when we have, you know, as it's proceed, as people see it, okay, as it's seen, we're in a crisis and we just sent all of our people away, you know, some of our medical staff, you know, that's how it's seen. It, it doesn't matter what it is, it's how it's perceived. But I want to get back on this gentleman. I, I, I'm looking and, and I'm requesting anybody, where can this gentleman get help? He's obviously physically sick and, and he, has, he has other issues and that. And I'm just wondering, is there some way, because this man has told me he has cancer. He has been diagnosed over a year ago. He lived in shelters here in St. John's. He told me they were so bad, everybody took his clothes and he stole his bike and he got beat up once. Okay, there's no security in the shelter. So he's in a ditch up there on the side of Kelsey living in a tent. I brought him up tarps and everything. There's nothing I can do for him. I have a 30-odd-year-old young man living with me because we cannot get housing anywhere for him. So, So he still lives at home with us. Okay, so I know the situation and that. But I'm asking now to anybody, and I'm listening to your show. I'll be listening to it all morning. Is there any avenues that I can bring information to this man? Or maybe I can go up and pick him up and put him in my truck and bring him somewhere where he can be looked at and and where somebody can say, all right, we're going to give you a bit of care. I'll check on you once a week or something like that just to make sure you you got your medicine or something. Because this man is sick. 
And like I said, we're going to pass that post where he's to every day. And he's been there a long time. We all know who he is. Anybody in St. John's, Mount Pearl area. Yeah, some of the okay. issue is some of the uh, the not-for-profits that deal with issues like this and with uh, this gentleman, people like him, they basically don't uh, operate much outside the downtown. Right, so some people who are presenting on the corner of Kelsey and Kenmount might not be even seen by some of these not-for-profits who are actively engaged and trying their level best, but they really have a pretty keen focus in the downtown area. Of course, maybe someone can someone can help this man present himself at the gathering place, for instance. It just comes to mind. It's not perfect, but it's better than a ditch in a tent. So, yeah, between the supports that are really concentrated downtown versus people, you know, turning a blind eye. How many people drive by that guy every day and don't even see him right yeah and you know something patty you speak to that man he is a really nice guy he is truly a nice guy he had some issues in his life that didn't go his way he actually was on top in life and had a really really good life and then something went astray and i I know his story okay something went really astray and now he is there. And like I said, the gathering place, he was in these shelters, he told me. He got beat up a lot. His clothes got stolen. He lost his bike. It was better for him to live in the ditch on the corner of Kelsey and Kim Mount, safer than it was for him he told me to be in those shelters. Yeah, we've heard that from people, for instance, in the tent encampment uh, right there on the parkway, too, saying that better and safer in the tent and in the shelter, which is a mouthful. Uh, Todd, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. Patty, thank you for taking my call, and I'll be listening. Hopefully somebody might be able to give me some direction I could pass on to that gentleman and, and give him an avenue where, where he can get his health taken care of. Imagine. Okay, I, I, I can't imagine. I don't want to because uh, I feel for the guy a little bit. Fair, anyway, fair you ball. have a good day, Patty, you too. and I'll be listening to you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Todd. Take care. Okay, sure. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. Um, there was a lady on the, the line yesterday uh, talking about the incentive, the, in, the, the incentive check that they were supposed to come out every month. So, uh, what incentive uh, check are we talking about, sorry? Okay. There is a Carmen tax. Yep. Okay. I received that, but I didn't receive the 80-something dollars they said that everybody was supposed to get. Everybody was supposed to get, but uh, I haven't received it yet. What, what's, the, you. what's the $80 one? I don't really know exactly what we're talking about here. So the carbon tax, the Climate Action Incentive Plan, that rebate was supposed to come out on the 15th, but of course the 15th on the weekend sort of compromised that sometimes. The government told okay. us yesterday when we asked them that there uh-huh. is a they were doing some sort of computer upgrade at CRA, and they think that everyone had a direct deposit. It was done by the end of the business yesterday. That's the information I got from them. But I'm not entirely sure what the $80 is that you're talking about. I yeah, apologize. It, it, yeah, it was a, a 164, and uh, everybody I've talked to received the 80 something dollars in their accounts, and it was some kind of incentive or working people for working people or something. 
I'm going to have to go back. There's so many pots of money and checks and subsidies and I grants know. and stuff out there. Sometimes I get a bit mind boggled with it. But during this break, I'll try to yeah. figure out exactly what that is. And if whoever's listening to the program this morning say, oh, this is that particular incentive pot of money, then I'll speak to it when we come back out on the heels of this break. But I'll try and figure it out because that one's just sort of over my head here this morning. <laughs> it's over my head, too. <laughs> Another question. Yep. Um, these people that are on the parkway. Yep. Um, where are they going to the washroom? I have no idea. Good question. Someone asked me already, uh, you know, someone also told me that they've seen them uh, present themselves at Confederation Building to use the washrooms just there off the foyer. I don't know if that's been allowed or what have you. But, I mean, there's only so many options. You either go to the trade school or, pardon me, the College of North Atlantic, or you go to Confederation Building because other than that, it's a long way from the next option. Uh, Maybe the Holiday Inn? A porta potty. Yeah, they've been told they're not allowed to have one. Really? Yeah, apparently oh so. Gosh. Yeah, so I'm oh, guessing dear. it's either Confederation Building, CNA, or the Holiday Inn. Okay. Or in the All woods. All right, then. Yeah, or in the woods. Yep. Oh, God bless who lives there, <laughs> around there. I know, I totally get it. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. Yes. Okay, no problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Does, Dave, do you know what that $86 is? I don't, it didn't ring a bell right off the bat. All right, let's take a break. Appreciate your patience. Mauricio's there to talk about the Meditech privacy breach. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. I th- if you file your taxes together, like the Climate Action Incentive Program or plan or carbon tax rebate, so yes, $164 for an individual, $82 for a spouse or common law partner, $41 per child under 19, $82 for the first child in a single parent family. I think ours comes in collectively, just goes in our bank account. I didn't. I don't think mine gets broken up, 164 for one of us and 82 for the other. But that's probably what it is. And the people are saying it might be the Canada's worker, Canada worker benefit as well. That one, the income threshold just went up a little bit. But even for individuals, the minimum payment there I think is 120 dollars. So I'm pretty sure Tom was right. It's probably the carbon tax rebate broke up between two different spouses. Okay, let's go to line four. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How about you? I'm nervous talking to you. I'm not going to lie. You take your time. (laughs) So, my story. I had um, a privacy breach last year at Eastern House by an employee. The employee was caught. Um, She was suspended for three months, had to retake her oath. Okay, so that's fine. That was over a year ago. Yesterday, I contacted Eastern House, and I put in um, a concern about this employee, and it's confidential spoke to Eastern House about it, fine. That was okay, nothing hurt. I get a message last night from this particular employee and her boyfriend messaging me saying that it was me who did it, their manager, or her manager told her it was me. So, like, now that's two privacy. I mean, her. I don't know if her manager had every right to go in and look. I contacted him this morning and I asked him what happened. He said there was a complaint put in. I looked into it. Um, I told her I didn't recognize the number. She asked if she could see it, and I showed her. Okay. Can you start at the beginning? What happened here? So last year, this employee, I I found out she breached my privacy. When I put in a complaint to the privacy commissioner, she was suspended for three months. She got in trouble for it. So she's gone back to work. Yesterday, I found something out, so I just put in a complaint to Eastern Health Agents. I wanted to let you guys know this happened. It was a confidential call that I made yesterday. Last night, I get a message from this employee and her boyfriend saying that it was me who called because the manager told her it was my phone number. 
So I'm, I don't know if this, this is allowed. Like, what's happening? What do I do? I don't know. So how did the investigation look? How did they determine it was you because it happened at your workstation or your computer or your, your no, phone number? I, you know how it all happened last year? Um, <laughs> I, this employee was driving by my house, and when I confronted her, I said, how do you even know where I live? She's like, I Googled you. I was like, no, you didn't Google me. And I was like, you work at Eastern Health. So I called and I said, can you see if my file was looked into? They came back, yes, she did do it illegally. So they did suspend her. She had to retake her oath. It's only a three-month suspension. That's all she got for it. Meanwhile, I had to put cameras on my house from this employee. What was so her beef fun. with you? Like, why was she even looking I, for your I info? I started dating her ex-husband. Oh, I see. <laughs> Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> man, oh, man. So that was fine. Then yesterday, her manager showed her my phone number that I put in a, a, a confidential call. So now I'm getting messages from this employee and her boyfriend now. Wow. And so, I don't know where to go to. I don't know who to call. Well, what does she want? What's she going to do? Are you worried for your safety or what is going on here? Well, I'll tell you now, I mean, I, well, we're having a lot of trouble with this person anyway. I'm raising her kids half of the time. So that's, it's just a whole thing. But. The fact that her manager told her that I was the one who put in a call yesterday, a confidential call. He, she said, can I see the number that called? He suggests, and he showed her. And how is that even appropriate? Exactly. So now I don't know what to do. Like, I put in another email to the privacy board, and there's no one getting back to me. So it's like, I don't know what to do. Has she said anything that has you worried about your safety or the children or anything? Or is she simply being an irritant and driving by and breaching yeah, your privacy and that kind of stuff? She's just a different breed. I'm just going to leave it at that. She's just a different breed. Okay. <laughs> but now, like I said, her boyfriend messaged me last night saying, you contacted Eastern Health. We know it was you. We saw the phone number. Like, what? <laughs> And how do they see the phone number? Like, a lot of this is really confusing. I, I, I don't mean to so overcomplicate it. So her manager, who is her best friend that works with her, he went in. He said there was a complaint put in. He said, I'll look into it and see what's going on. So this, he admitted this to me this morning. He said, I looked into the computer to see what the complaint was. I went back to this employee and said, oh, yeah, I see the complaint, but I don't recognize the phone number. She said, can I see the phone number? He showed her. Seems to be kind of a lot of loose lips on the go here. Right? <laughs> Why would anybody offer anybody any information about who called and when and what they called about? Exactly. Yeah, so, I'm not sure so I understand I, with this one. I mean, Eastern Health, like I said, is privacy. I mean, last year it really upset me that this person only got a three-month suspension. That, that was shocking. And now that her and her manager are doing this now is, is mind-blowing. I'd go a little bit over the local manager's head just to maybe, you know, into David Diamond's office to see if you can get any guidance or explanation as to Where? why David Diamond, who's the head of the uh, health services, because this okay. kind of stuff, you know, the executive level needs to know what goes on on the ground. And this one just seems like a little bit of oversharing, too much information, a bit of loose lip oh, stuff. Right, right. So I put yeah. that on their radar. I don't know what that's okay. going to do. And of course, you're going to, I'm going to have lots of people tell me, well, she sh should call the police and you can do as you see fit but until there's something that can be investigated by police there's not much they're going to be able to do i actually did contact the police last year when this employee did it okay um they couldn't do nothing i had to go yeah. to the private commissioner which i did 
and that's when she got in trouble. She got suspended for three months. But her manager now, like I said, who is her best friend, is giving her more information. Yeah, I put this on the radar of some of the leadership, to be honest, because, you know, okay. we have to ensure that people in supervisor or managerial positions know exactly where the line is and where how not to cross it or what happens if they do, because, you know, Absolutely. regardless of personal relationships, there should be just some hard and fast black and white rules here about what you can and cannot do with people's personal information, whether it's accessed through a computer or looking at a call display on a phone, which is, that's the strangest part of the story for me. So I put that on the radar of those over their pay grade. I put it in the hands of Mr. Diamond's office. Just see what you can find out. Okay, sweetheart. I thank you so much. I really appreciate your help. I appreciate your time. Good luck. Let me know what happens. I will. Thank you. Thanks, Marie. All right, bye-bye. You know, how many times? We just had another so-called privacy concern when there was a bunch of uh, pediatric diabetic uh, patients and their families all copied on the one email. No blind copy, so everybody saw everybody who's involved in that particular program. I'm not sure how that really jeopardizes their care, but people don't want other snow unless they're wanting or willing to tell them about what's going on in the world, especially when we talk about our health and when we talk about our finances. You know, so... There's got to be a bit more of an understanding there, especially at the old health authority. Strange stuff. All right, uh, before we get to the news, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. How about you? Not bad at all. Patty, I just wanted to take one minute to put in a, a, a final promo on our Concert of Hope, which is coming up this Saturday evening at... Uh, I guess it's an 8 o'clock start time at the Arts and Culture Center. Uh, tickets have sold really, really well, and there are probably less than 100 tickets left. So anybody who was uh, hoping to go or planning on going should um, certainly either go online or uh, or call the Arts and Culture Center box office today. Um, it's been a, an absolutely fabulous response. Uh, I guess a lot of people want to see the Masterless Men live again. And, um, and of course, the Masterless Men have some friends with them uh, this time. Around they have the Dolly Kits and Scott Graham. Dolly Kits are a young trio from the uh, Southern Shore area who uh, who the uh, the folks of Masterless Men really think are an up and coming group, and uh, we really think that uh, people should get out and listen to them. So, less than 100 tickets left. Um, every extra dollar that we make goes. To to help us provide the services that we offer to individuals and families who are dealing with eating disorders. So uh, we ask everybody to um, to get out, support us, and we want to thank all those who have bought tickets so far. Yeah, and Scott Graham, just to connect a few dots, Scott Graham is with the Celtic Connection as well, so people might know Scott from performing with yeah. that band. They're th they just celebrated their 30th anniversary as a band, as a matter of fact. So great lineup, great cause, always been a great night. I've been to a couple and always enjoyed it. So that's my Yelp review of what you got going on, and hopefully you sell out every single ticket, Paul. Yeah, it'd be great, Patty, uh, and uh, really appreciate all the support we've gotten gotten from you. Uh, every time I call, we seem to get a we seem to get a little burst in ticket sales. So hopefully that's the same way today. And it's this Saturday night, uh, Arts and Culture Center at eight o'clock. Tickets on sale now through the Arts and Culture Center box office. Good luck with it, Paul. Thank you for this. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Bye bye. bye, -bye. Here we go. Concert of Hope this Saturday. That's Paul Toomey, the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. All right. Take a break for the news. Trina's in the queue to talk about speeding, and Richard's talk about an eviction that's going to make its way to the courts. Don't go away.
Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Torbay Town Councilor Trina Appleby. Good morning, Trina. You're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Um, thank you for taking my call. There are a couple of things I wanted to note this morning. Uh, I know you mentioned speeding, and I'm going to get to that. But before I do, I just wanted to touch on radon testing and the importance of that. Um, I, I shared last night at a public council meeting, this is a, a cancerous gas that can be found in homes. It's uh, next to smoking, the leading cause of lung cancer in Canada, in my understanding. And um, and it's uh, it, it's a gas that uh, we can easily test for. And now that it's getting colder, people are sealing up their homes. We definitely want to make sure it's an odorless, tasteless gas. You know, it can be addressed by simply opening your window. Uh, you know, it, until you can find other strategies to to deal with it. But it, it's something that people aren't thinking about, aren't talking about, aren't aware of. And if you just Google radon in Canada. You can find information from the government of Canada about radon and how to be safe and access your home. So I just want to touch on that because I'll tell you, I was surprised when I found it in my home, which was newly constructed. And I do think from a public safety perspective, creating awareness and advocacy around that is certainly important. So I just want to touch on that. The second thing I want to talk about was speeding, Patty. Uh, this morning, as my children were catching the bus here in Torbay, I watched um, you know, the street that I live on, and it was like a racetrack. And I know as a councillor here in the community, and also as the vice president of, you know, municipalities in Newfoundland Labrador, this is not an issue that's specific to the town of Torbay, but it absolutely is an issue that we need to deal with when it comes to pedestrian safety, you know, the people driving the vehicles. I know last year, in particular here on my street, um, there was a vehicle when my daughter should have been at the bus stop in the marsh next to my lawn. It's it's a big issue. It's an important issue. And I just want to have a conversation about it this morning because, you know, slowing down, part of that is asking the RNC to come down. And, and, and we do. We call. We encourage residents to do that so that they can report and the RNC know where the speeding is happening in, in our community. But there's also the driver awareness piece of, you know, you're in a rush, I get it, you're trying to get to work on time, you've got to drop your kids off to school, but everyone's safety is so important. And when things go wrong in a vehicle, you can't undo that. So I just felt it was really important to call, have the conversation, ask people to think about it before they get in their vehicle. Uh, My uncle told me when I was getting my driver's license, you know, as a child, he said, uh, this vehicle, it does what you tell it to do, Trina. You're responsible from the time you put that key in that ignition to the time you take it out. So I just I just wanted to call. I wanted to raise the issues around speeding. I wanted to ask people to be conscious of their speed and safety. Soon enough, we'll have ice and snow. And really an important conversation, I think, that we need to have in this province. Well, you know, if you're in and around municipalities in this neck of the woods, and you you know, you talk about people being in a rush and they're in a hurry to get wherever they're going for whatever purpose, you're just going nowhere in a hurry. You, you simply are. The road network yeah. is not set up for that type of speed. It's unsafe for you and everyone else around you. There's red lights around every corner. So that's basically what happens. You zip past me, you're dodging in and out of the lanes, and I see you at the next red light. It's just exactly how it works. Then you talk about people being in a rush on the highway. Yeah, you can make up time, but then with 
of course, with that increased rate of speed, up goes the danger. Down goes the safety. So I just never understand it around town. And it happens to me every day. It's one of my pet peeves on top of blowing through red lights. I can't help but watch for it every time I drive to or from work because I don't do a whole lot beyond that that I need to be driving around a whole lot. But it's just endless, reckless, aggressive, speeding, distracted. You know, I guess it's going to take whether or not they get uh, caught and fined and or they get into a collision and hurt or hurt someone else because I just don't understand it. I'll admit, when I was younger, I had a pretty heavy foot too. I guess that's sort of probably a little bit common amongst younger drivers. But it doesn't matter what age you are now, driving around St. John's is madness. Well, you know, Penny, it's our responsibility as people who get behind that wheel and drive that vehicle to be responsible for our actions. And, and you know, I really think having that conversation around the supper table this evening for people who are listening, you know, all of us are guilty at some point or another of going over the speed limit, but it's our responsibility to check what we're doing, make sure that we're being safe and that, you know, we're having conversations about how, how responsible am I being with this vehicle. And I think that, you know, as I watched my, my children this morning out there at the, at the bus stop and cars were just whipping by. And, you know, I want to put a shout out to the, the, the council. We, we just worked to, to get the speed limit on this road. The mayor announced at the council meeting last night that is now 50. And, and still, you know, it, it didn't impact it. The signs are up on either side here of the street and it didn't impact at all people just whip them by and i i really do think that having that conversation talking about safety i mean children on their bikes there's you know a lot of the rural communities and torbay is a rural community still next to st john's but rural and a lot of our communities we don't have shoulders on the road so they're washed out mm-hmm. and you know people the children are on on that that road trying to get up the road or even i see cyclists down here all the time and friends of mine from st john's they love cycling down this way but again, you know, it's it's nerve-wracking for anybody who's out, uh, and, and accidents do happen, and we need to be very careful and thinking about what we're doing before we get behind the wheel. So my hope is that this call today, it's not just my neighborhood, it's all across, you know, our community, it's all across our communities and our province, and I hope that people listening have that conversation today or during the week around dinner tables, supper table, the water cooler, and really, before you get in your vehicle and turn it on, think about what am I doing to help address this issue and let's not be contributing to that as we move forward. So the, the last thing, if I could, I just wanted to thank people. I, I was listening to your show this morning and there's so many complex issues that so many people are trying to address and they're, they're too big for this conversation right now. But I do want to put out a big thank you to leaders who are stepping up in every different way to contribute to their communities. It's, uh, it's, it's really important. There's a lot of complex conversations that are happening, and I'm very grateful to you and your show for providing a space for these conversations. Uh, but I do want to extend a big thank you to everybody who's trying to make a difference because I really do think thinking about talking about these issues, this is the beginning of creating solutions and finding ways forward. So I just wanted to, to finish with a big thank you. Fair enough. And the speed issue, I, apparently I'm in the minority, but I'm a big proponent of the speed 
speed cameras and the pilot program if I had my druthers it would have come with a ticket not a warning letter in the mail nothing slows you down quite like a cop car and or a speeding ticket it might not resonate in your mind for months or years on end but it certainly will for the next couple of times get behind the wheel so I'm a speed camera guy and on the radar uh, it, it is look I think that's a fair warning that you put out there and you know whether you contact the government of Canada or whatnot you can buy them just about anywhere I bought one at Home Depot the trick there is you really got to look for the certification tag on those radon detectors they also recommend that you not only follow the instructions very very uh, concisely but you got to do the monitoring for about three months and it doesn't emit anything it doesn't uh, collect anything that's harmful and it's certainly very helpful if you identify that radon is in the home and it comes with serious health impact just pick up a, a detector and they're not expensive and they're virtually everywhere i bought mine at home depot yeah and and, and petty you know when i found the radon here in the house i bought one on amazon and it's it, there's an app on my phone it beeps when it gets high i can control and know exactly what the level is in my home but i i wouldn't have known i wouldn't have had those safety measures in place had i not have known that it was there in the first place so i think that's very important but the last thing if i could just say about the speeding you know we've had this conversation about right across the province and one of the discussions that we've had at the mnl table has been around those cameras and bringing them in and i absolutely hear you and i think it's important there's a multi-pronged approach here to addressing many of the issues that we're dealing with um, but I, I, I'm just I'm, I'm very grateful to have the ability to to call in, speak with you, have this conversation. And you know, if there's someone sitting in their home today that didn't hear radon before, they're curious, they wonder what it is, or if they you know take a, a run to wherever they're going today and they plan for a little extra time because traffic could be an issue or whatever's going on. Um, you know, I'm just hoping that one step at a time we can make changes and help make things better. Uh, across many of the things that we deal with. So, uh, so yeah, thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation with you. I'm uh, very much looking forward to We have our convention at ABM coming up at the, uh, the end of the month here in St. John. So looking forward to seeing many of our colleagues and leaders from across the island and Labrador to, uh, to get together and talk about how we find solutions for many issues that impact municipalities. And you speak about many of them on your show. And I'm up for re-election, so who would be a good counselor if she doesn't uh, put a nod in saying, I'm looking for the vice president's seat again. So I look for all support and have conversations with councils on that. But I think it's really important, Patty, to have these conversations. And I just want to thank you for the time and the ability to have this conversation. I appreciate your time and the call. Thanks, Trina. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Trina Appleby's a town councillor in the town of Tarbay. All right, Richard, you stay right there to talk about an eviction that's going to be uh, adjudicated in front of the courts. And then we're going to talk about the five-point plan on housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Richard, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Uh, I spoke a couple of times about uh, an eviction process that I was fighting in the courts. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. Now, uh, I've been living in my apartment for 18 years, and it was sold to an organization, and they took possession of it in in, in early December. And we had some... Uh, some issues, right, because they had a slightly different management style, you know, uh, uh, from my previous landlord, and so I had made, you know, a couple of complaints to them, right, because I kind of felt that they were bullying me, and so it, so instead of uh, cooperating with me, uh, they just sent me an eviction notice, and so, like, in a period of two months, they actually sent me three three eviction notices, and so the last one indicated that I had to be out of the apartment by May 31st, and so I started searching for an apartment and 
And we know, as you know, that it that at this point the housing market is is non-existent, right? And so I couldn't find a place. So, uh, so when the deadline came, you know, I told him, hey, I couldn't find a place, and so I have nowhere to go. Uh, you know that, that I was going to have to stay there and keep looking. And uh, and so I asked him for for some more time, you know, so I could find a place. And now we had been texting. Uh, on a regular basis, uh, we had like 132 texts over that seven-month period. But between the period of uh, June the 6th to July the 7th, they didn't communicate with me at all. And on, uh, June, uh, on July 7th, I received a notice that was registered mail for me at the post office. And, and when I went over, it was an eviction from the Residential Tenants Association that was effective immediately. And I was like, I was a bit shocked because I had not received notice, and, and therefore I, I did not attend the hearing. So, so the hearing uh, took place in my absence, and I was shocked, you know, that, you know, that it happened. And so I texted them uh, and requested that they give me the tracking number so that I could find out why I... I did not receive my notice of hearing, but the landlord they didn't send it to me, and so I made I made a couple requests, but they didn't send it. So I so I made an appeal to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, because according to the rules, you know, uh, the landlord is supposed to pro- provide evidence that they had sent me my notice of hearing and that it was prepaid and properly addressed, and so they had not done that, and so the Supreme Court. They accepted my appeal and they granted me a stay of eviction. And so the stay of eviction uh, uh, was in place until September the 14th, where we had a hearing. And so uh, I went to a hearing at the uh, Supreme Court on September the 14th, and uh, we spent all morning and we spent all of the afternoon, roughly six hours. And so I presented like hundreds of arguments, uh, but the landlord did present the, uh, the copy of the envelope and the tracking number at the hearing. So I was absolutely flabbergasted, you know, that they had it. And so basically that meant, you know, that they had properly served me. But so the problem was with Canada or with Canada Post, where something had gone wrong in, in you know, uh, when they put it in my mailbox and it wasn't there because I never received it. And so... Uh, the Supreme Court, they they stopped my stay of eviction, but they did grant me another month. Okay, so uh, so at this point, I was supposed to be out um, October the 20th, right, which is which is this Friday, and so I had appealed uh, the Supreme Court decision to the Appeals Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, and and it was based on. Uh, um, there were three different issues, but the ones I argued was the balance of inconvenience. Now, in the reply to my appeal at the Supreme Court, uh, the landlords, uh, so I had made an allegation that, that the landlord was evicting me in order to significantly increase my rent, right? Because my rent is really cheap. I'm only paying $600 a month. And um, in the reply, they say, you know, that this, this organization denies all of my allegations. So so, uh, so I had my hearing, which was an application for leave to appeal uh, yesterday. And so we spoke for probably two or two and a half hours. And this organization, they had a law firm there, right? So I had to argue um, in opposition to a lawyer. And I argued, you know, that the balance of 
of inconvenience, you know, was was against me because um, um, the organization had basically said, you know, because they were uh, denying my allegation that it was about money and that I had been paying my rent, you know, that that they really weren't losing anything, right? And this organization did not suffer any inconvenience, right? and that and that I was suffering an inconvenience. So. Um, so uh, the judge had promised that uh, he's going to have his uh, decision uh, this Friday, which is cutting it really short, right? Because uh, but at this point, uh, you know, I'm going to be one of those people who ends up at the gathering place. And, uh, I mean, like I have a lot of my personal possessions, and I really have nowhere, you know, to to lay my head type thing, right? So I'm, I'm extremely concerned about... Uh, you know, ending up like so many other people. Understood. So the outcome was simply a 30-day extension? From the Supreme Court, yeah. And so I had appealed their decision, right, because I, uh, because I thought that the judge had made an error in judgment or, you know, or law in, in his assertion that... Uh, right, so uh, what I'm doing is, is I am appealing the... Uh, I'm appealing the initial eviction, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, way back, way back in uh, February when they first evicted me, um, according to the Residential Tenancies Act, uh, a landlord cannot threaten, intimidate, or or, or 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 evict a person who who makes a complaint or makes an application for for a complaint, and and and, and because that's called a termination for an invalid purpose. Now we know that the, uh, we had the uh, the three month no fault eviction, right? Uh, you know, for landlords, but there's also a protection there for the tenant, which is this termination for an invalid purpose. Which means that you know, if you complain about the landlord, well, he doesn't have the right to evict you because you're complaining about something that he's doing. You see? Understood. Yeah. Right. So uh, and now. Uh, so I never had the chance, you know, to present that case at the Residential Tenants Association because the hearing happened, you know, without me. And so when I was in the Supreme Court, I was not arguing that appeal. I was only arguing to extend the stay until we have a hearing date. And at that point, I will be able to argue that it, that it was a termination for an invalid purpose. And so I, okay. when I'm in the appeals court, I'm also uh, requested an extension of the stay of eviction until we had this hearing day so I could demonstrate, you know, that the landlord had performed an illegal eviction right from the start. And so, uh, so I had uh, I'd investigated Canada Post, and according to their policy, uh, when, when a person has registered mail, the postal worker is supposed to leave a notice in their mailbox, and if that person does not come to the post office and pick it up within five days, Canada Post is supposed to give a second notice. But that's, that never happened. And so uh, I approved that because I'm also involved in another uh, case against the city of St. John's, and a decision has come from the Residential Tenants Association, and it was dated October the 2nd. Okay. What in my mailbox, and I've been waiting now, so this is, uh, this is the 17th, which is 15 days later, and, the, and Canada Post has not come back with that second notice, you see, but that's their policy. And, and you know, so I seem to have a pretty... Uh, a pretty daunting task in that I had to uh, 
fight against uh, Canada Post, right? Because they are the ones who are not, you know, fulfilling their obligations in in terms of making sure that people are notified that you know that there are very important documents there, uh, and so. Um, so it's also in the legislation at the Residential Tenants Association that says that if a landlord uh, sends a notice of a hearing by registered mail, it's considered served five days after it's sent. Right? So right, there's no uh, there's no part of the act there, you know, that that is concerned about whether or not the tenant receives it. Right? The one concerned about whether or not the landlord sends it. And so landlord- okay. So I got to go, Richard. But are you representing yourself in all these court challenges? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, but I have been, you know, uh, uh, pretty successful. And so one of my arguments, uh, you know, in this process, in our appeal system, is that uh, uh, because it's a system that only hears cases based in terms of law and jurisdiction, it is outside of the realm of the low-income people, right, because it's very difficult to argue a case based on law and jurisdiction. That, that requires legal expertise, which requires that someone hire a lawyer, which is basically out of the reach of most people, so that, you know, so our, our appeal system is one of the basic fundamental principles of our democracy, but most people do not have access to it. That's an absolute fact. Uh, sometimes, you know, the bigger entities, governments, big corporations, they can wait you out. It's as yeah. simple as that. It is not the level playing field that it's cracked up to be. Uh, Richard, stay in touch. I'm going to take another quick call here before the break. Good luck. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, this is just patently and demonstrably true, isn't it? All right, let's go to line number two. Ruby, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you this morning? I'm grand. How about yourself? Same, thank you. Patty, uh, I did speak to your moderator or whoever, and I did tell him I wanted to get in touch with the guy that spoke about the gentleman up on the road by Kelsey Drive. I was wondering, I, I don't want to put my number out there publicly, but I do a lot of outreach in which I get clothes and blankets and things like that to help people. And I'm just wondering if this gentleman would like to have some blankets or do we have plenty? Do we have plenty of clothes? Or you know, how do I approach him? Is he quite happy other than the fact that he needs shelter? Oh, I don't know. I can't speak for him or answer any of those questions, but I can pretty much guarantee he's on that corner right now. I see him every single day. Because I can get him a weighted blanket. I can get him some blankets and some clothes that would fit him, warm socks and a hat and a few things like that. Maybe a gift card to get Tim Hortons or something, but I can't, I, I'm not in the position to get him a house. No, no, of course. But, but you- I understand what he's saying when he says the shelter, because I've heard stories that would keep you awake for a whole week, just listening to the stories that's coming out of some of those shelters that we're paying out of our tax-paying money, 125 to $250 a night per person. 
in the question about what this gentleman may or may not need, you could probably approach him yourself if you'd like to see what he might be in need of, because I really don't know exactly what his circumstances are uh, when he's not on that corner. But I'm sure every little bit helps. And if it's a gift card to Tim Hortons or to Sobeys or one of the shops close by where he stays and lives and panhandles, I'm sure he's not going to turn it down. No, and, and I don't want to make the gentleman feel bad. And when I heard that he had cancer, been a cancer patient myself, I wouldn't want to be living in a tent on the side of the road. I, my heart just goes out to him. I, I don't understand why income support has not gone to that gentleman and has made some moves to help him. And I don't mean putting him in a shelter. He needs somewhere where he can be protected needs medical help and this is the outcome we should be making i thank god for that gentleman that came on this morning i don't drive very often to kelsey drive but i will make a trip to kelsey drive today you can rest assured I'm sure and he'll appreciate. I'm sure he'll appreciate it, and hopefully something can change for that poor man. Because, like I said to the earlier caller, is I'm sure there's lots of people that just don't even see him as they navigate oh Kelsey God. Drive or Kenmount Road. Uh, final thoughts to you, Ruby, before we have to go. Well, you can rest assured I will be seeing him if he's there today. If not today, tomorrow I'll see him if he's not there. But I will do what I can. And I can leave my number with you offline if you get a call such as this and somebody's needing clothes and blankets. Then you or your one of your guys can call me, and I'll make sure they get it. No problem. Dave has I your number. I don't want to put my number publicly. You don't have to know. Yeah. David has it. So if anyone calls with similar needs, we'll be happy to give you a call, Ruby. Thank you so much, and I'll be happy to do what I can to help them. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for the call. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Here you go. Lots of people out there willing to help, right? And the questions about, you know, not-for-profits and outreach organizations, which really do, and this is not a knock on them, it's just a geographical issue. They really do concentrate in the downtown core-ish of the city. So, yes, if you're someone who knows someone or you yourself could use a little leg up with some of those types of supplies, as described by Ruby, you let us know. We'll try to connect you, too, both of you. Uh, let's take the break. When we go back, Tom, you stay right there and talk about the five-point plan on housing. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I would like to start uh, just reminding people about the Miles for Smiles Foundation contest we're doing Children can go to milesforsmilesfoundation.com and download a safety circle or safety network worksheet. Have their kids fill it out to identify the five trusted adults that if they're hurt or someone's trying to hurt them or they're afraid that they would go talk to. And then take a picture and send it to the private secure email. And uh, everybody who sends it in will get a $20 gift card from Frontline Action. At the end of the month, we're going to draw for a free birthday party and a, or a school uh, outing, depending on the choice of the child. So I'm just trying to do a little little thing. I want to keep keep the word out. It's still Child Abuse Prevention Month. Absolutely. Um, I want to just quickly pass comment on Tony Wakeham, congratulating him for uh, securing the uh, leadership. And I was a little disappointed yesterday with 
kind of uh, parroted the words of Mr. Polyev, uh, who I agree with a lot of his points of view, but I do not agree with the conservative and PC parties take, and really for that matter, the local liberal parties take on climate change. But, but in particular, Mr. Wakem's comments about technology over taxes, and and I you know I just call on leaders uh, of all stripes to realize that we have to figure out a way um, to, to you know to be courageous and to look our constituents, their constituents in the face, and relay the message from the earth, from our children's and our grandchildren's futures, that we have to figure out a way to consume less of everything, but most importantly, less fossil fuels every day. And, and, you know, it depends on the technology. Look, I'm not going to say that what we currently have in place with the structure and the rebates and the carbon tax, not going to applaud that for one second necessarily, but technology, sure. But what technology? Because some of the technology that they promote as part of the solution might not be all that it's cracked up to be. So, yeah, whatever the technology is, let's hope that it's some real tried and true proven stuff as opposed to things that sound like they make sense because if we're trying to deal with and uh, reducing carbon emissions, when someone says we can just capture the carbon, okay, but some of the carbon capture processes that are in place, like they're not all the same. There's a variety of ways that carbon capture programs are put in place. But the whole quote that 80, 90 percent of carbon capture uh, works in some of the technology being utilized simply hasn't been proven to be true. So, you know, tech always sounds like one of the big solution pots we should be leaning on. And absolutely it is. But it kind of depends on the tech. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's just fundamentally a fact that we have to figure out a way to stop putting as much carbon into the air. And once it goes up into the air, it goes up there. And there's no world where there's a plant following everybody's vehicle as it drives around, sucking. You know, you just not you can't have a direct air to capture that's going to actually make any meaningful difference. And if it did, it would take so much energy to operate a plant that it would be uh, just an impossibility. So, again, we just have to figure out a way. You know, to get too bogged down, it we have to all consume way less. And I know it's difficult, and and there's a lot of sacrifices that are going to have to be made. But that doesn't necessarily impact our day-to-day happiness. It, you know, it just we think it does, but we just have to figure out a way to adapt. Anyway, the main reason I called. Um, so the premier announced uh, his five-step plan yesterday, and the, the one that I think, and you picked up on it too, the one I think is actually the big win is, but unfortunately they're really not invested very much in it, is the um, secondary and basement suite incentive pilot. So when that was announced, you know, I went and I looked around and pretty well almost every province and territory has something similar already in place that they've introduced in the last few months. And and basically the concept there is is that people who own homes and they need to live in the home, so it's it's not there's not a rental option, but but then the province is going to um, facilitate a a loan, and then if they meet the the requirements, which would be a you need to live in it, and b you need to charge below market rates, which most of the other provinces are using CMHC uh, rates, as that would be the benchmark, and then they'll forgive the loan. So, you know, if you look at that as someone who's trying to hold on to their house or who can see in the future how with the cost of everything and, and and the different challenges that we're all facing that this makes sense to do. But you could also match this up with the greener homes, uh, stiff stuff from the province and, and, the, uh, and the feds. So it's a great opportunity for people to um, 
kind of inflation-proof or future-proof their lives. And, and the other benefits, obviously, would be helping the seniors stay in their homes longer. It, it potentially can revitalize neighborhoods because a lot of neighborhoods, as the families grow up and move out, you know, you, you get neighborhoods that are less and less people living in them, which could then help to keep schools open, help people pay off their mortgage faster or offset their expenses, um, help people with low income have a home. Uh, does not, According to studies, it does not increase need for parking. Um, increases density, which is a big thing, but but without loss of land because we're not you don't have to cut anything down, you don't have to pave anything over. It's existing. Um, aids in increasing transit use too, again with that higher density. And, and a big thing too is it avoids greenhouse gas impacts of concrete, asphalt singles, the production, transportation of building materials. So, so to me, this is like the big win. However, they're limiting this to it's a, they're calling that one a pilot, and they're going to limit it to 100 homes. You know, there's 240,000 structures in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it seems to me that's like the big win because it solves so many problems at the same time. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a pilot until it's not. If it's extended, like it becomes really attractive because this is the, you know, the classic uh, both sides can win here. We can add units to the rental market, and without question, you know, putting a rental unit in your home, like a basement apartment or what have you, revenue side, uh, the resale value goes up, so there's a lot of good to this. I'm going to just guess, and I don't know what's going to happen, but if there's immediate swift uptake based on people who own their own home now, but to go down, you know, 50% forgivable loan up to $40,000 over five years, looks pretty attractive. If that works the way it might, then I would imagine they'll have to extend it because the crisis won't be solved with just this five-point plan. No, and the other thing, too, is, again, this is a big call on the municipalities, too. Like, they've got to figure out a way, and I, and I know Mr. Peliev is calling them out, too, on that, but, but they have to figure out a way to fast-track this process so like there should be a working group in every municipality that has the ability that who's at that scale but even the smaller municipalities who probably aren't so bad at this but they need to you know create an action plan so that they can fast track all these things but but especially these these processes because this is something that people shouldn't have to wait a year or six months or jump through hoops you know it's a lot of work and the other thing is with this program, because it's kind of complicated, unfortunately, with a lot of these programs, greener homes and all that stuff, it's the people with the most education, the people with the most resources who a lot of times take advantage of these programs, unfortunately. So the province should also uh, create a working group that helps people do the paperwork to make this as easy as physically possible, you know, uh, because, I mean, at the end of the day, obviously, we all know this is, we're in this, I mean, everything's a crisis. I realize that, but, but. Like I know someone right now is losing losing their home, and and I'm just working through my head, you know, like what does that look like for people? Like I just I can't even I can't even imagine going into the winter, you know, one thing live in a tent, which is mind blowing, but but even all the other people I know with with mortgage rates going up, and and a lot of people are just like boiling frogs, and and you know this this person has got to be out tomorrow, and you know the bank's taking their house, so like. It's just, you know, a single parent with two children. Like, you know, it breaks my heart. And we need to be more proactive. And every part of the community, in particular the ones we pay to serve us, need to really step up and, and do whatever it takes to help save the people who need to be saved. I appreciate the time, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. Sean's there to talk about standard of care protocols. And then Steve's also in the queue to talk about the, bo- about the booster. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Steve, you're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I got to turn my volume up here. I thought I was after the next guy. Oh, sorry. There's my chihuahua. <laughs> no problem. There you go. Yeah, I just, um, I've been away for a couple of weeks on a vacation for the first time in three years and uh, just got back and a friend of mine messaged me that uh, Dr. Fitzgerald had done her update there about the boosters and things. And uh, I guess you guys on BOCM on your website claim that 23% of uh, people in the province have received a booster in the last six months. It's a blatant, uh, blatant lie. Um, the... Uh, it's blatant lie based on what? That's not our number. That's uh, public health's number. I'm not blaming you. I'm sure it's them. Yeah. Um, this is kind of how they work. So basically, I, I take screenshots of the ArcGIS, uh, the, the dashboard for Newfoundland and Labrador, because they don't show the previous one. They don't give updates uh, that are relevant. And basically, what they did back in February, the first, is they said on that bottom left corner, now it says vaccination with an asterisk. It used to say up-to-date, and that was defined as the percentage of the total population who have, had, who have received a booster or completed the primary series, two doses, within the last six months. And it was 23.7% on February 1st. Then on March 29th, it was 22.1%. It went down 1.6%. That's 8,618 Newfoundland and Labradorians that were eligible to get a booster that didn't, that it said no to it. Then... All of a sudden, April 12th, they come out, and it's now called vaccination with an asterisk, which is defined now as those who have received a booster or completed the primary series since September 21st of 2022. So that's not six months anymore. Now that's seven months they're going to, right? So that's why it went up by 0.5%. So they're not taking into account the people that are saying no to the, to the vaccine or the booster. They're only counting the new ones that got it and adding progressively. So that goes on into June. And I'm sorry, so what's the point you're making, Steve? Well, they're no longer saying six months. She said we've had 23% of the population get vaccines, get boosters in the last six months. But the data they're showing goes back to September 21st of last year. That's 13 months ago in four days from now. It's not in the last six months is what they're reporting. They're reporting since over a year now. And they're saying that in the last six months, 23% of the population have got boosters, but they didn't make it in the last six months. The definition that they're using is people that received a booster or completed their primary series since over a year ago. So that's not the last six months. It's twice that time frame. Okay. So the 23.4% that they said on September 27th, people that got a booster or complete the primary series since last September, 23.4 in April, it was 22.6 by the same definition. It's only gone up by 0.8%, which is to say less than 1% of Newfoundland and Labradorians have received a booster or completed the primary series in the last six months, not 23%, less than one. Because they're not doing the last six months. She defines this last six months, but their data is based on over a year. And what do you think the impact is? Because that's a really low number, regardless of what time frame we're measuring, you know, compared to uptake early on. So what impact do you think that has on people who read the news story or heard the press conference or uh, look for comments and whatever from Dr. Fitzgerald? So what do you think any of this means? I, I, why don't you get her on the phone? Give her a call. Get her on the phone. Why don't we get her to answer the question? Wouldn't that be nice if we could actually have a one-on-one with her rather than having the, you know, the prepared questions and stuff? Well, I think prepared. also just shows people don't trust the media and they don't trust her. People don't listen to that crap anymore. They know it's lies and they don't want to listen to it. So what are actually, prepared questions? You see all around them. People are people are sick. People are getting COVID over and over again that are vaccinated. I have lots of unvaccinated friends that never had it. They don't. They're, they're perfectly healthy and it just. Uh, 
it boggles my mind. That, I mean, people obviously people see this. Less than one percent of the population has got a booster in the last six months. People are aware of all the injuries that are happening. It's not. It's no longer safe and effective. In fact, the opposite seems to be very true. And that's worldwide. That's not just a little island in the North Atlantic. That's all over the world. I mean, the UK has out, outlawed it for people under age 65. You can't, you can't get one. And other countries have done the same. There's all sorts of lawsuits going on now. Pfizer's admitted that there's myocarditis. They don't say how much. They say it's most prevalent in males age 12 to 17. We've never had a single death under age 40 in an unvaccinated person in three and a half years in our province. And yet we're telling six-month-olds or parents of six-month-olds to get their children vaccinated. What, when the risk is zero... How can the risk-benefit ratio ever benefit or ever suggest that you should get a vaccine? It makes absolutely no sense. So just pick up on something said about prepared questions. What was that in reference to? There was a lot of rapid-fire points being made. What's the prepared questions? That's what you want to talk about? No, no, I just want to know what what that means because you've made a bunch of points very, very quickly. So I'm just asking based on some of the things you've said. Every time I watch one of these these, uh, uh, question periods they've had in the past... There is a. They, they don't answer the question looking at the person. They look at a page in front of them. The questions are submitted before the press conferences, so they are. They have a prepared statement for it. No, they're not. <laughs> sure, Pat. Of course not. No, no, no. Well, no, I mean, no. I've only ever talked to her. I think maybe twice ever on this program. I've never given. I've never given anyone a question ever. Never. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the press conferences with with uh, Haggy and Fury. You know, the behavior modification guy, and and. Um, and Fitzgerald, the questions are pre-planned, I'm sure. And if they're not, prove otherwise. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's unconscionable. That, and I mean, the, the thing is, how does this ha- come to happen? Is like 2004, Section 181 was written for the C- Canadian Criminal Code, which stated that people that knowingly tell lies that cause harm can be fined up to $10,000 and imprisoned up to two years. And then Trudeau's government repealed that in July of 2019. So now you are allowed to lie. Anyone in media or government is allowed to lie. That's frightening. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I can only speak for this outlet. Um, nobody here submits anything to anybody. I mean, we're, we're, people are told that's not how it works. If I say, for instance, we're actually trying to get Jennifer Williams from Hydro on, and they want to know what I'm we want to talk about. I'm not accusing you of anything, Patty. I'm not accusing you of anything. Right? You work for Stingray, though, right? Tell yeah. me, how much money does Stingray receive from the federal government in funding? Not a dime, as far as I know, to be honest with you, Steve. I don't know, care about what you know, Patty. I wonder what the actual truth is. Well, you I asked me, so I guess I'm the person on the other end of the phone. Yeah, it'd be nice to know. It'd be interesting to know, because I, I think that makes you kind of complicit. In, uh, it doesn't make mean you're, you're fabricating anything. It's just that you're then expounding them to people to listen to, and, and people hear it over and over again. It's like safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. It wasn't the shot. It wasn't the shot. You hear it enough times, you start to believe it. But the facts are what we really want, isn't it, the truth? Yeah, sure we do. I think some of the facts being espoused, like, for instance, with the National Citizens Inquiry and stuff, it was just like-minded people echoing each other's sentiments. So where the facts lie, I'm not even entirely sure because I very clearly have talked about the efficacy of the vaccine, not what it was as it was advertised. Then, of course, i got to be told that Betty White died because of the vaccine. So it's been a really difficult yeah, conversation to have. Pardon? Yeah, you're bringing up little little points. That's speculation. But the fact of the matter is, we were told that there was no such thing as natural immunity. We were told that the vaccine provides better immunity. The vaccine efficacy, whatever it is, wanes to zero in three months now. And yet the guidelines were told is you're up to date if you had one in the last six months. So that's leaving people vulnerable, if you believe in vaccines at all, for at least three months. We were told they were completely safe. I mean, these are, these are abject lies that... Um, 
somehow our, our officials that lied to us that actually told people go get the shot and people have died and people have got Bell's palsy and people have got myocarditis that they'll deal with for the rest of their lives. How, how prevalent people, do you think that is, Steve? It's a really good question, Patty. I mean, I know from the, the U.S. data from VSAFE that they had like 10 million people have side effects that were serious or some huge number. It was 28% of people reported serious adverse events and they just stopped reporting it. A serious so, question. Is that like the VAR site? Is this a self-reporting issue or is this a no, this is medically reported? That, that, that they, there were 10 million people that signed up for the, for the uh, it was 10 million people, 28% of them had serious side effects. So they said, I'm healthy. I want to be part of this. They gave them a uh, cell phone uh, thing they could they could um, they were part of a study so they could then report whether they had side effects or not. You should look it up. Be safe. V S A F E. And um, these are. I mean, the other thing that's that's become clear in the last couple of days is that Pfizer, when they did their clinical studies, they made the first process one was done in a very scientific way. So process two to make the billions of doses use E. coli to to uh, grow the the. the uh, vaccine and ultimately it's not the same product that they did their initial testing on and their initial testing 1223 people died i mean that that's that's a shocking thing and if you don't believe me just type in pfizer 5.3.6 and it's uh, the adverse events that they reported themselves that they tried to bury for 75 years they had 270 pregnant women 270 pregnancies they only followed 32 of them. 238 got lost in the system, and of the 32, only one had a live birth that lasted a week. I know for Health Canada, the every change to vaccines, whether it be Moderna and their updated COVID-19 vaccine for that, whatever it is, Omicron XBB, something, 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 uh, they have to resubmit for approval, not just it's a blanket approval based on the first submission, right? <laughs> first approval, the government's trusted Pfizer. They didn't do their own research. They didn't test them. They just said, oh, Pfizer did the research and said it's safe. And then when the actual deep, the actual uh, data came out later, after there was a, a Supreme Court uh, request in the States by Aaron Siri, and he, he said, we need this, this data. And they finally got it out. And it's like, holy crap, all these people died. All these people had side effects, serious, serious side effects. 1,223 deaths. And all they said was no new uh, safety signals were, were observed and surveillance will continue. I mean, how, how can you say 1,223 people dying from your vaccine is normal? That's basically what they said. And the governments have fought it. In, in this province, you know, people were, were quick to say someone died from COVID as opposed to a COVID-related death. I think some of the messaging hasn't been helpful at all. I've been going with COVID-related whenever we talk about it, which I haven't for, for quite long, some time. If the death toll of COVID-related uh, deaths in this province, I think the last number we saw was 364. Now, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was 364. Given the average age of the population, given the prevalence of chronic illness, does that not speak to at least some effectiveness? And in you know, in conjunction with public health policy. And before we have to go, but I'll let you answer that one before I have to say goodbye. Yeah, it would matter if if less than three hundred people had died that were not that were vaccinated. I mean, over three hundred of those deaths are unvaccinated people. A friend of mine sent in a FOIA request asking for that. At the time, there have been fifty some odd unvaccinated deaths, two hundred and sixty nine vaccinated deaths, 202 of which had received at least three doses. 
And I know last time I spoke, you said, well, that's because they're frail and whatever, but that's who it's supposed to protect. Why are they dying? Why but I don't think dying? anybody, including myself, no one's ever denied that the underlying comorbidities make you much more prone to serious illness or death. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the beast with almost every illness out there, is if you have a lot of underlying health conditions, just about everything is a bit more dangerous to those people. Then that's not related to COVID or anything else. That's just an understood medical fact. Right. The more sick you are, the more sick you're going to be if you get something else. But you're you're vulnerable. So go get your vaccine. It'll protect you. Well, why are so many people dying? If there was no mandate and the mandates were a mistake, it really caused a massive upheaval, which is never going to be brought back to earth. If there's no more mandates put in place, people will just make up their own mind. Get it or don't. Yeah. Again, why is no one being held to account for the coercion and the lies? I mean, they, they knew these things were hurting people. They absolutely did, and they've they've covered it up. They've they've actually they, they told us that there's there's no side effects. I mean, Haggy told my my MP um, himself. He said I need to get the second dose back way back when. He said I got Pfizer the first time. Can I get Pfizer again? He said just take whatever they give you. Yeah. And we were told AstraZeneca. They said take AstraZeneca. I was supposed to get AstraZeneca. I'm over 55. I thought I'm going to wait a little bit on this. It's really fast for seven countries to develop vaccines simultaneously and independently in six months. That didn't make any sense to me. So as a doctor, I'm thinking something's not right about this. And then when in two months they pull it because people are dying from blood clots. So, you know, we were told it was safe. Then people die and they say it's not. I'd really like to know the accuracy of some of those numbers. I, I would absolutely like to know. I'd like to be as accurate as I can because there's a lot, a lot on the line. And there's been about 100 million doses delivered in Canada. So if it's as dangerous as some people tell me it is and how quickly it's killing so many Canadians, in a population of around 40 million, what, about 100 million doses, last time I checked, because I don't check very often anymore, the vaccine has been a very frustrating issue. Uh, yeah. I don't know how accurate some of the real high death toll, real high injury rates are, because again, 40 million Canadians, 100 million doses at least have been administered, and I just don't know where to get pure, unadulterated fact, as opposed to safe and affected versus it's killing everybody. Uh, Steve, well, I am late for the news. I'll give you 30 seconds to wrap it up, but I do have to go. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. Not from the government anyway. Don't trust them, that's for sure. I mean, the big question for me is we had 300 million doses purchased by Trudeau, God knows why, for the original variant. Um, and so we have 200 million doses that haven't been put in arms. Where did they go? Are they in the water supply? How did they get rid of those? Why did he spend all that money? Why does he spend... Why do you send all our money to Ukraine rather than treating the people at home? We have homeless people in our own city that get nothing, and yet Trudeau's taking all of our money and sending it there. I mean, Freelance gave $2 billion to a company that doesn't exist. Where is an inquiry into that? What, what is going on with this government? we got an upcoming election, and Singh is going to go with the Liberals again. What do people that voted NDP think about that if he's going to be a, Lib- a, a Trudeau uh, Well, he got an 81% leadership review number, which is kind of low compared to years past, but I guess that speaks to where they currently stand. And I think there's been some ultimatums thrown around by NDP caucus and or uh, members of the party. Steve, I do have to go at 11.05, but I appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. Sean, you stay right there to talk about standard care. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let us go to line number two. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Oh, thanks, Patty, for having me on. Uh, Patty, I wanted to to talk about mental health, but... Just quickly before that, I uh, just want to say something about your last two callers. First, kudos to the person that was just down there trying, 
to explain what went on during the whole COVID pill thing. I think he's dead on with a whole lot of stuff. Not gonna not gonna get into whether statistics are right or wrong, but some of the common sense stuff, particularly like how all this happened in six months, and all of a sudden there's um, there's a, a vaccine. Nobody's tracking what the real ill effects of this were or are, and uh, other things that he, he said. I, I totally believe it. But you said stats are you know stats aren't important. Aren't they exactly what's important here? Well, I think they are, but the problem is collecting them, right? Because it appears that the companies that uh, produce these pills and and our government doesn't want to collect that data. Well, they do. I mean, there's even a pot of money for vaccine injuries in this country, so it's not like it's not been uh, considered. The problem with this whole stat compilation thing is, you know, between self-reporting sites, which I think we should take with an absolutely massive grain of salt, and then even just some, you know, what people refer to as uh, basic rate fallacies. Like, it stands to reason to me, and I've admitted, look, they're not actually as they were advertised, and you know, the quickness with which they came to the market is because unprecedented type of investment and cooperation that actually led to this, and mRNA has been, you know, investigated in the lab since the 1970s, so it wasn't six months only for a, a new technology. And the issue with how many people have died or what have you, you know, early on in the primary series, the first two shots, the uptake here was huge. It was, right? The stats were very, very clear about the percentage of people who took the vaccine. Then if you incorporate the number of people who died, especially those who are older and unwell, it kind of stands to reason that there would be more vaccinated died than unvaccinated, just given the math of how many people were vaccinated. You know, so some of those things, I think we had to consider the entirety of math and stats as opposed to, you know, and stats can be very misleading. There's no denying that. But when most people were vaccinated and those who died, the percentage of them who were vaccinated well of course that was going to be the way just based on the percentages and the numbers and the straight up math do you think yes uh, i do to a degree and patty you know what i don't want to i don't, I don't either i never thought anything would frustrate i never thought anything would frustrate me more than muskrat falls but the yeah. vaccine wins hands down yeah and and how this was being reported you know every day it's you know, we had nobody, we had nobody, uh, or very few people dying in retrospect of whatever the people were dying of in our whole health system, in my opinion, just got way off the rails. Uh, looking at this one issue that was just a one small issue of what everybody else had to had to contend with and suffer from. But that's that's it for me on that one. The, the other one, though, I just commented on, the, carb, the carbon uh, issue that the previous uh the previous caller mentioned, and I'll just say a few things. One, and I've been just looking at this recently more so just to see what the rates of it are. Firstly, 0.04% of the atmosphere is CO2, a very negligible amount of, uh, of percentage of the air. The other thing is, it's coming out in new science now, and I've read it in a number of places, and I'd like to read more to, to ensure that it's fully right. What they're finding out now is in, we, we associate CO2 with the rise in temperature, but there's scientists in Europe, very learned scientists who aren't uh, you know, politically funded, are finding that CO2 does not cause climate uh, temperature increase. Uh, CO2 follows temperature increase, and there is clear grass that if you go out and search these out, that you will see underneath the temperature increase in the world and lagging behind it at its years, that we actually get a CO2 increase. And the other thing and last thing that I'll say, and if you do the research on it, the amount of CO2 injected in the air 
compared to other processes in the world is very negligible. What is other, what other processes are you talking about? Producing cows. Yeah, methane's a, mag- a massive contributor. Yes. Uh, no yes. question. But yes. you know who disagrees? Like, I, dis- I disagree with you, and that's neither here nor there, but you know who else disagrees with you? The fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Uh, they point the finger of blame directly at themselves through testimony in front of the House Senate Committee in the United States or in the courts right now. They've admitted clearly. They knew before they were willing to tell us, very much akin to things like drug-related uh, drug matters like Purdue and opioids. They knew what they were doing, and they did it anyway. Fossil fuel companies knew what they were doing, but they did it anyway. So between the insurance companies and the fossil fuel companies, they disagree with your premise about the problems and the issues yeah. of CO2 and its relationship to climate change. So I'll just leave that there. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's fair. And, and I'll close on this one by saying I don't think anybody's done a real, um, a real what uh, carbon footprint analysis of this, you know, uh, wave that we're on for electric cars and the real repercussions of that in a whole lot of different levels. That is, I mean, the, the minimum is in the United States. There's been a whole lot of municipalities that have just said, no, we can't do this. We don't have, we don't have the electric to do that. But. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. If that's the grid isn't prepared for what's happening, uh, undeniably. So whether it be and I think electric vehicles get a lot of the attention, but it's bigger than that. It's straight up population concerns. Is people transitioning? Whether it be for effectiveness, efficiency, like electric vehicle. The biggest attraction to me is cost of operating. Straight up. Yeah. I mean, my buddies with electric vehicles, they report their maintenance numbers and the cost to charge their vehicles compared to what it costs to operate my rig. That operating cost is the most attractive thing about an electric vehicle to me. Yeah. And now, again, because they get a lot of the attention, if we're talking about the global electric vehicle fleet, it's about 3%. So in this country, BC, last year, 20% of all new vehicles sold were hybrids or electric vehicles. And that transition is going to happen regardless of people's motivation. The grid's not up for it. The grid's not even prepared. Yeah for all the people transitioning from oil to central heat pumps or mini splits or whatever with all the government monies available. That's happening very quickly, and the pressures on the system are real. Exactly. And to me, I, I, I guess the thing, maybe based on what you're just saying there, something came back to mind, is that, you know, I think maybe the, the fundamental thing with this is we're, we're being sold this be, uh, bill of goods to think electric cars and hybrids are going to solve a monumentous problem. I don't think they are at all. They're going to probably create a whole lot of problems. But I think what, without a doubt, what we have to look at them is, I don't know, maybe it'll get up to 15%. Uh, you know, there's select areas that these make a whole lot of sense, running back and forth, to the, you know, around town, that sort of stuff. But to think that they're going to, that they're going to replace our global transportation system of tractor trailers and trains and City, uh, city infrastructure, you know, tractors and stuff. Sure, Ford already has, has suffered a, a monumentous loss this year because people just didn't get on board with their electric cars. Every, every vehicle manufacturer, but every single vehicle manufacturer does have a comprehensive approach to building electric vehicles. And transportation is the number one emitter of uh, CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions in this country. Uh, so it right. will make some difference. Now, creating an electric vehicle and manufacturing a battery doesn't come with zero environmental impact. Of course it doesn't. I mean, mining is not clean, you know, but some of the things you talk about, like public transportation and tractor trailers and what have you, there's 
there's already technology where they're building electric vehicle and hydrogen powered vehicles for those purposes, especially when we talk about the uh, rapid trains and the like. They will indeed be powered by something other than diesel in the very near future en masse. Now, whether that's good or bad, I'll leave it up to individuals, but that's absolutely the trend and that's 100% what's happening. I think what we got to do is, you know, we're on this, we're on this tsunami wave of we can't stop the electrification that everybody thinks this is going to be the universal solution to uh, the CO2 issue. One is I think we got to speak much more on where does the CO2 come from, how are vehicles uh, a percentage of this, and what other things like chopping down the rainforest can we do to and stop making cows to to affect this because from what my readings are the percentage of co2 generated by cars is not the rate determining step if you believe in climate change and like i said which i do i'm reading now well but here's what i'm reading now and, and you know whatever i'm not going to debate that today but what they're showing now is co2 does not lead climate change climate change when i'm talking temperature actually the temperature changes and then the co2 changes that's that's the new science, right? Well, I don't know what the so, what new science yeah. means, but the consensus there's oh. no there's no such thing in the scientific community as 100% consensus, but it's overwhelming the consensus on this front. And again, if that's what the oil companies think, it's hard to deny that what they long t- long knew isn't actually happening because we see it. I mean, the impact of climate change and electric vehicles and all the rest. You know, we talk about the price of food and what have you. People will blame, blame it on profit and they'll blame it on uh, greed or gouge or what have you. But the fact of the matter is, between floods and droughts and wildfires and extreme weather events, that's the biggest contributor to the price of the groceries. I mean, there's no argument against that, as far as I can tell or as far as I can see. Sean, I know you wanted to talk about something entirely different than this. So how about we do this? Because I'm under pressure to get to breaks on time. Would you mind staying on hold? I'll come back. We'll pick up on standard of care. Okay. Is that okay by you? Yeah, no, no, no problem. Okay, let's do that. Sean's on hold. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's rejoin Sean on two. Sean, you're back on the air. Okay, thank you. This this is going to be pretty quick. Um, it's a mental health uh, issue, and I have somebody in my house who's been trying to get off opioids for about four years and basically is not doing too well with it. Um, and I just had a couple of questions. I don't know who can answer them or if you have a way to reach out. The one thing is, I mean, obviously we have a mental health uh, issue here in Newfoundland, as does, I think, pretty much everywhere. And, of course, that's tied into the housing issue and other issues in our society but the number one thing that i would like to know from the province and where it is is what is the provincially sanctioned standard of care for people who have opioid dependencies or addictions and what is the standard of care protocol to 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 help them and help them get back to a normal life I'd also like to know how many treatment places are there for people with mental challenges? You know, like as in how many, relative to the people that are out there, and I don't even know if they know this, who are suffering from various mental health issues and addictions, and, and I'm kind of more interested in the opioid thing, 
Uh, well, let's talk about that for a second then. Because, you yeah. know, in your email, you were talking about, like, I'm not entirely sure exactly what question you'd like, for instance, for me to ask of those in authority regarding standard of care, but the introduction of Suboxone has been helpful because there was only a, a small handful of doctors that were accredited to prescribe naloxone, uh, or, pardon me, methadone. So the Suboxone has been a nice addition to it because now everyone can uh, uh, prescribe that particular drug to aid you in getting off of the opioid so that's one thing so if i get the right person on this program to ask your question regarding standard of care what does that mean like how do i ask that question if you were to craft it for me well okay well what i'm what i'm wondering is and this question is coming from a result of what i've been seeing and and really what you got to dig into is this well the, the standard of care is simply this is there a consistent um protocol used here in the province for people that are on opioids and that means okay what do you do with them do you do you put them on suboxone do you put them on methadone and what is the taper sequence for getting them off that like you know how, how is this done because my my involvement with it is it appears to be random it doesn't appear to be a prescription that has a beginning and an end and it's up and down and all over the place. So are the doctors who are dealing within the province following a set of guidelines that has been agreed and sanctioned as to where this where this goes? Does that make sense? I think so. Uh, I don't know if there's a straight up answer to it. I'm sure there's a set of guiding principles and standard of care and protocols. The problem is, is for some people, how faithful are they to the program? Secondly, the reaction of the body, the physiological reaction would be different for different people. So I don't know there's a strict uh, determined length of time for something to be effective because of those two moving parts. How faithful are you? And secondly, what's your level of addiction and how your body reacts to whether it be methadone, suboxone, or whatever the case may be. What do you think? Does that make sense? Well, it, it does, but only to the point that if you, you should have a standard of care, in my opinion, that addresses those issues. You know, I, I would think it would start with something like how long have you been on it, you know, how much uh, opioids have you been ingesting, if it's, if it's 50 milligrams or whatever, and also um, also to address as this unfolds the other the other health issues that you're going to be affected by, and I'm not so sure people ever talk about this, but I think a lot of people are given the impression, the general public who are familiar with an addiction or dependency, that they kind of figure that, you know, if somebody's strong enough, they can just simply get off this stuff and get on with their life. I'd also like to know the success rate of any of this and really to know of whatever the protocol is. I mean, there has to be some guidelines. If you're issuing Suboxone to people or methadone, like there, there should be, in my opinion, like who's making the decisions of how this has to be administered? Or is one doctor saying, I think it should be this. Another doctor said, no, that doesn't work. It should be this. Uh, the, the taper is going to take you two years. No, we can do the taper in uh, six months because that's what they try to do. And really get some statistics on the success rate of these programs. But it is my opinion at this point, there is no protocol, general framework that is guiding this 
to a success point. Yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if there's not a standard protocol in place, which would be crafted between the NLMA and, of course, then ultimately with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. And you mentioned about, you know, strong will and getting off of one thing or another. It would be impossible to capture those numbers because if I decide to go cold turkey, whether it be to quit smoking or to try to get off of crack or to get off of meth or to get off of uh, uh, any opioid, because if I'm not interacting with the medical community, it's impossible to know the success rate there, which I would imagine is very, very low. Add to it the standard of the protocol you're speaking about. You'd also have to factor in whether or not anybody not only is how faithful to taking their uh, methadone or suboxone and how their body reacts, add to it the fact that they the relapse has got to be pretty high too so you could be on one of these treatment programs and then have a slip up and get back on whatever was the addiction that was had you in a death spiral so i guess you'd have to capture all of those factors to well, come up with how strict the protocol could be right and hey this is not a, this, this is not a simple thing but in my opinion if you don't have some general guidelines uh, general, you know, they might not be hard and fast, but some general guidelines, which should start with the fact that somebody's on, and I'm talking opioids, and at a certain level, they have a certain condition, here's the program we're going to put together, and in a certain amount of days, years, you, you will be expected, or based on this program, it will be expected that you're going to be able to live an opioid-free life. The thing is, and I'll say it again, uh, and you, you know, you used alcohol, or you know, like you want to use cocaine. To the best of my knowledge, with alcohol, like you can, and other things, you can sweat it out. But the thing is with opioids is, and people don't realize this, it creates hell on your body, which can be a week of sleepless nights, uh, constipated for days, throwing up for days. Uh, you know, can eat. Like there's a whole lot of side effects of it. Just uh, and not to, make, not to mention, it, it physically changes the GABA receptors in your brain, so your brain is no longer the brain it was before you're on opioids. Sure. So it's not, it's not a simple process like a lot of people kind of, I think, think, well, you know, get off the damn thing, you know, you're weak-willed, you know. It's kind of like if you have to take heart medication to prevent you from having a heart attack, and you don't take that for two days and you have a heart attack, well, guess what? You can't stop taking that. Yeah. Um, I don't buy the weak-minded argument at all, to be honest with you. I think that is absolutely gibberish. I mean, addictions are based on addictive properties of things, not based on whether or not you're able to talk yourself out of uh, being addicted. (laughs) I just don't understand how people use that as a baseline. Sean, i got to get to the news. Last word to you, quick. Okay, that's right. Yeah, the the thing is as well, which I've read, is that, and I could be wrong, but there's addictions and there's dependencies with opioids. An addiction, I think, in general, is like, like booze or something. You like to feel it at night. It gives you a buzz or maybe marijuana or something. But there's a dependency with opioids that's a clinical or not a clinical, an organic body issue that you can have the best spirits you want to get off this as this individual that I'm dealing with does. But your body, this person's been going through hell for a year physically trying to get off them and they're just not getting the help they need to get off them. yeah it's not a mental addiction it's a physical addiction it's a physiological addiction that's they're all very different things i mean same can be said for nicotine one of the most addictive sub- substances in the world uh sean appreciate the time take care of yourself okay. thank you take okay. care bye-bye all right uh, let's go when we come back the pc member for terra nova he was one of the three leadership candidates lloyd parrots in the queue don't go away Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Terra Nova. That's Lloyd Parrott. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about yourself? Doing well. Doing well. Now, not to pry into your own personal issues, but we all know you've had some health issues. How are you? Doing well. Doing Good. well. On the mend, I had, uh, had a stint in the hospital summer, prolonged three weeks. Uh, had, a, had some procedures done and uh, back on my feet and ready to go. Glad to hear it. Yeah, appreciate you asking, actually. Uh, Patty, I wanted to call in today to talk about the, the we proposed yesterday to do a debate in the House of Assembly, you know, to address the serious cost of living and affordable housing, you know, and and to be frank, it was shot down, and, and so the general listener understands what happens is when a proposal like this is put forward, there's two things that could happen, and, and that is everyone in the House could say that this is good, let's go to debate and have this discussion, or could go to the Speaker for a ruling and come back for a vote. Uh, it never should have went to the Speaker. Everyone in the House of Assembly knows we have a crisis, and sadly, it's not the first time that the Liberals have denied that we are, we are actually in a crisis. Uh, they did it with health care. I remember we put forward a PMR last year, and former ADM at the time, John Abbott, stood on his feet and said there is no health care crisis. And here we are now with men and women sleeping in tents, and certainly people right across the entire province who are struggling to live every day because of the cost of living. Lloyd, what does that debate look like or sound like? Like, what, what's on the table here to be debated? Because cost of living and purchasing power that of my dollar, they're all really not necessarily interchangeable things because the inflation rate or food inflation or rent or mobile phones. So like, how, how do you focus in that debate? Where do we start? Yeah, so I would guess that we start from a logistical standpoint, how we get goods and services to this province and how much uh, government is involved. Then I would go on to say, you know, things like sugar tax, carbon tax, other taxes and fees that we pay. Uh, we know that there was $35 million that government has collected since uh, since the last budget up until when the new carbon tax came in. And it's odd to see these ads that the government is coming out with now uh, actually condemning the carbon tax that they supported when the money was going in, into their pockets. Now, but aren't they mostly talking about uh, carbon tax implications on home heating fuels because that was exempt with the provincial structure and of course under the provincial structure the province uh, got the money now well, now that we're under the federal structure the feds get the money absolutely patty and here we are in october uh, and people are going to start filling up their tanks again and this is going to have a huge impact if you take the average uh, oil tank out there i believe the cost to the, in carbon tax alone is somewhere around 250 dollars you know, we've got Newfoundland and Labrador housing units here where government has made no effort to put heat pumps in. And you would think when you look at how people live in this province and, and people who, you know, need assistance the most, people in Newfoundland and Labrador housing certainly are some of our lowest income. And government doesn't practice what it preaches. And at the end of the day, we've also got a government that's putting in two new thermal generation plants on the south coast of Labrador. Diesel, we're going to pay taxes on that. Uh, you know, we've got places that are, are bringing oil in from Quebec, like Boise's Bay, to operate there thermal generation plants that government isn't collecting taxes on. We've got to start looking at how we do business and what we can give back to the people that put us here. And I think that's where that conversation starts. You know, this this whole idea yesterday with the the, the five-point plan, is it's far too little too late. But, Patty, I think you and I both know that without conversation, 
there are no ideas. And for this not to be a conversation on the Florida House of Assembly yesterday clearly shows that the Liberals don't want to talk about it. Diesel generation in Labrador, it is kind of confusing that I think it was in Charlottetown where that diesel generating facility caught on fire and had to be replaced. Yep. And we went right back to diesel. Like there are alternatives. And with electrification of buildings, that's a fair point. Because if we're talking about what they did at Memorial University and what they're doing with some other government buildings, you wonder why it wouldn't be applied to the actual units they own and operate for the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. I wonder will any of that change when they're talking about the $3 million to repair and to renovate, I think it was 143 vacant units, whether or not they will take that approach that they're asking all of us to take. In addition to that, this is a sideline point, but I want to make it, is they're going to the private sector to see who wants to take on this work. It used to be all the tradespeople required. I'm not talking about inflating or bloating the public service anymore, but to avoid the vacancies at the rates we see, if we had the skilled tradespeople working for the housing corp, maybe we could avoid or at least lessen the number of units that end up in this disrepair because then you'd have staff to do it as opposed to scrambling with the private sector which is already stretched thin you can't get a contractor to do anything unless you got a big ticket item in front of you so i wonder how that gets incorporated into your thought well i would hope that multiple units would entice private contractors to go to work and i agree with what you just said but the other thing i'll say to you is in my district as an example we've got units that have been in disrepair for 10 years actually we have units in our district that have been empty for 10 years uh, if they're not going to be occupied perhaps they need to be sold and a new unit brought somewhere else where it could be occupied the other thing is is that you know when we look to uh, the housing crisis specifically here in st john's we make the assumption that people are here because it's where they're from. Uh, I don't buy that. I mean, people come to St. John's because uh, Stella Circle, a gathering place, other places are here. And when you go to rural Newfoundland, those supports just simply aren't there. We just had a, an issue, in, in again, in my district, but I can talk about Labrador. I can talk about anywhere, um, where uh, REACH funding uh, was cut. We're cutting funding in rural Newfoundland, and we're creating a crisis in St. John's. You go to Labrador West, uh, and, and I'll say you look at two of the things they're short on, doctors and teachers. And they're short because they don't have housing. But I'll tell you what else they're short on. They're short on affordable housing for seniors who want to remain in Labrador, who had a full lifetime up there. And, and the cost of doing business up there costs more. Government needs to look at those things. We can cut costs in lots of areas, certainly when it comes to housing. And, and those savings can be put back out into offset the cost of living. Look at biomass uh, from, from our uh, wood harvesters here. Look at what uh, happens out in uh, the Bonavista area and in Corner Brook. We could be heating our public facilities with biomass from, from wood chips and stuff. We don't do any of the things that we talk about, but the reality is the, the crisis that we face when it comes to the cost of living has to be addressed. And uh, I often say to people, it's like going down to the beach and getting 100 pounds of cable and one cable at a time. But if we don't start with one cable at a time, we're never going to solve the problem. And the whole fact that this debate came to the Florida House of Assembly yesterday and it was shot down, is shameful. We're here for five weeks to debate the people's business and to try to make this a better place to live. And the biomass bit, you know, whatever happened to that wood pellet plant, I think it was up in Hawks Bay, maybe, that it was proposed for. Whatever happened to all of that stuff, that kind of came and went before you know it. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I don't know what the hesitation would be to, you know, have a bit more of an open flow on this. And if you focus in on, which is the intention of emergency debate, then you don't have to go down the path of, how come I don't have a doctor at my clinic at Whitburn? You know, which is important. Yep. But if we're 
we're going at cost of living, maybe, just maybe, uh, I know that, you know, uh, being in the opposition is critically important. Sometimes there's examples of criticizing for the sake of, but on this front and at this time, if we don't incorporate every good idea, and I think I would speak for most people in the province, we don't care who has the good idea. We just generally do not care at this point. We just want good ideas. Patty, debate is non-existent. Bills are brought to the floor the morning of. There's no time to prepare. Government doesn't want to have the conversations. There's no more committee work. But the reality of it is is that everyone in that house was put there to represent the people who put them there. And those people right now are hungry. They're cold. They're not getting the medications they need if they're sick because they simply can't afford it. And that's not an urban or a rural problem. It's a problem right across the entire province, no matter where you live. And everybody has seen it. Seniors, children, average income, high income people can see it when they go to the grocery store and other places. And, and there, there may not be a one item that can fix it all, but if we've got to start tackling it. There's zero question. I wonder what's going to be, and this is more of a federal thing, but you know, with the confidence and supply agreement and the I guess the ultimatum regarding universal pharmacare, and I get it, the sovereign debt load is big, the price tag is enormous, but every single time that anybody has looked at it, Royal Commissions, uh, the most recent one by uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins, every single time anyone's looked at it, there's a huge upside. There's somewhere like 8 million Canadians are unable to take their prescription drugs. What do you think happens to them? They get sick. What happens then? They go to the hospital. What's the most expensive thing in the country? Being in the hospital. So I, I know people say, ah, socialism, da, 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 but the cost-benefit analysis, which used to be the cornerstone of capitalism and and or of uh, conservatism <laughs> well the numbers are there so you can put whatever ism you want on it but you know scholar spade a spade looks like it's a good idea uh, spend money in better places Pat. oh of course and my experience uh, hospital just showed me that i mean th- there's ways to save money i can guarantee you and yeah. that money in turn can be put back to the people in this province it's not about how much you spend necessarily, about it's where you spend it. Uh, Lloyd, appreciate the time. I'm glad you're doing well. And what's your future in politics? Sticking around for the next election at least? Oh, I'm sticking around, Patty. I'm all in. Listen, uh, we had a great convention. I'm fully behind Tony Wakeham. We had three really good candidates. I believe we all brought something to the table. Uh, I think that this province is bright under Tony Wakeham's leadership, and I will be by his side to help him get to where we need to get. It's time that we have a politician. Listen, my whole campaign was based on me saying, if you want to lead, you have to listen. Well, I know for a fact that Tony listens. He's a friend of mine. He's a good leader, and I think he's... a provides a great future for this province. Appreciate the time, Lloyd. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Lloyd Parrott is the PC member for Terra Nova. Let's take a final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Sylvia, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay. How about you? Yeah. Uh, Oh, I'm heartbroken. I've been to uh, Tent City almost every day. Um, Yesterday in the height of this, well, from the time the gathering at the Confederation Building, I say NTV and CBC didn't show what they should have shown. I did a video myself from the tent city at the height of the storm. Um, the food tent, everything got destroyed. Everything's wet. A lot of the homeless are getting up this morning. I had some pictures sent to me this morning. Their water they have no clean boots, no dry coats. I could come home and put my coat up to dry. There's everything. We had search for socks yesterday. They were freezing, freezing to death. Honest to God, I was I was frozen myself, but that's fine. I could come home and get a hot bath and warm myself up and get in my bed. 
but they need they need some wood. There's no wood there. They have all their food stored that they had. You know, everything is just wicked. And those people, last night I stayed there till about 9.30. There was so much chaos. There was a mixed communication. They were going to come and take them. The ones that wanted to go, put them in a hotel. But then the cross-communication was they were bringing them to the shelter. They never did. None of them, I don't think, left. Maybe, maybe two or three. There was one young lady taken to the hospital. I held her yesterday because I thought the shore ship's going to blow away. Broke my heart. And she cried. She said, I'm sick. The worker came over, said she w- he would have someone come talk with her. No one talked with her. No one. Oh, that's a, it's almost like they're saying, that's not my department. We have to get another department in. It's just crazy what they're doing to these people. I'm heartbroken. When you said that there was some, I can't remember what news outlet, but someone reported a story but didn't show what they should have. What are you speaking to specifically, Sylvia? Even from the Confederation building. You know, they're putting out pictures. There was quite a few people there. Yes, there was a lot of different topics and news was covered from different areas. But the actual gathering, there was a lot more people than what was shown up on that video that they put out there or the pictures, you know. Um, People are crying because there's so many different issues. Yes, I have my issues. Every child matters and I'm strong advocate for that but where are the nonprofits? we've got five indigenous people down there there's not one two drummers came on sunday thank you well alan you know that they did that but that didn't give anything to these indigenous people that are there i'm indigenous and that's why i'm there because i know they're there you know they need some support Whatever organization is out there, the nonprofit for the indigenous, they should be there as well. But some of those groups, what they have to offer, some of the folks on the Hill don't want. Well, they could donate something, Patty. They could donate. I know one organization, I don't want to say their names, but one organization does have a trapper's tent. That has a stove. Maybe they might have two or three down there. But they haven't even come. The indigenous people, there's all kinds of money there for them. There's something that they could support them with something. You know? You know it only works out. They get 60-something dollars a month or every two weeks, I think it is. Works out to $4 a day. You know? And is that number a social assistance number you're talking about? $4 if they're shelter people. So how can they afford a telephone, a cell phone or anything? Yeah, the issue with uh, access to a phone, you know, and I know this is not what they want, but, you know, you have to call the shelter line to get a shelter bed, and then more often than not, they're told, well, we'll have to call you back. But if you don't have a phone or a phone number, you can't get a call back, you know, unless you're able to sit at a friend's place along their landline or borrow their phone or whatever. So there's something to that. Now, there are some programs out there to get 
phones in people's hands you know some of it's page you go as opposed to big data plans that some of us would have but anyway if you're looking for donations what specifically would you like people to consider donating if they have the wherewithal we need wood okay mm-hmm. uh, we need some dry socks dry hats the the young girls out there they are frozen you know I've brought down four big bags of leggings that I've collected from people you know they're just cold patty cold right to their bones i would imagine this that damp cold out there the last couple of days too and as we know right around the corner and before we know it and there was already a dusting of snow in labrador city the other day or yesterday mm. that's next yeah. as we are all familiar with the weather is fairly predictable when we know when winter's about to start and that cold damp mm. damp gloomy weather out there today must be particularly poor for them especially when they're so wet from yesterday so there's a lot to this and it is pretty heart-wrenching to see the lot in life that some people have it's unbelievable the stories that i hear not only on air yeah. but off air boy oh boy yeah. unreal sylvia i'll give you the last word stand up for a couple of days a couple of hours um the challenge that i put towards three liters of uh sleep out for 12 hours i've received replies and a handshake from two liters the other leader hasn't even bothered to read any of my messages or anything that I've put out. And I don't think he will reply to it. But two leaders are coming over to spend the night homeless. And they're very serious about it too, that they will accept this challenge to see what it's like from 12 hours, six to six. And they walk in with nothing, only clothes on their back. So, and there'd be no special treatment given to them. You know. Fair enough, Sylvia. I'm off to the end of the program, but I appreciate the time. Take good care of yourself. Yeah, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, and again, some of the issues regarding outreach and outreach organizations, what they're doing on this front, you know, like some of these groups, what they have to offer is something that we're told uh, from people themselves at these encampments, for instance, like an emergency shelter. It's not what they want, unless it comes with some sort of written guarantee about permanent housing, which is, we'll see. Four couples have indeed been given the keys to a unit belonging to, or belonging to the government, I guess, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. They were all couples too because they didn't want to separate them. So anyway, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.